0: Do you see that uh, sloppiness with words uh, having that much of an impact, negative imp- or adverse impact on investigations in other places? Have you seen that as well?
1: Well, I, I see it. I see it in criminal cases. That's what you're talking about. I, I, I see a lot. Uh,
2: for example, I,
1: we, we started meshing the lamps, and the fact that the laboratory, when they talked about comparing those fibers, they never did say they matched. They never did. They said they were consistent with (laughs) or or could have been. You follow me? People took that as gospel. And they weren't. I
2: mean, yeah, they were consistent,
1: but so were 10,000 other things consistent. You you see what I'm saying? Yes, sir. And those kind of things go on every day. And I want you to look, uh, from, uh, it took place in the last week, there was an article uh, on the CNN, I believe, about crime labs and how bad they are, including the FBI. And, and it's amazing. And those people speak, see, they put on their white coats and they went, blah, 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 walk in there and they're, they're like people doing commercials. I'm a doctor, you know. <laughs> You know, <laughs> folks, I'll guarantee you in Seattle, for example, they were guessing all the time. Guessing. They had no idea who they were dealing with. They had no idea about the, the identifications. They had no idea about the causes of death. They were guessing. They always guess. And I, that's why I think some in the book I said that this, this was more like uh, uh, MASH and was Quincy. <laughs> wow. You know it would be one thing if you just had this one amazing story
3: and it was an exceptional situation but it's unfortunately it's not
4: here are the headquarters of the nation's fact law enforcement agency the federal bureau of investigation the bureau maintains the most modern and completely equipped crime detection laboratory in the world
5: The discipline of microscopic hair comparison was developed not by scientists, but by law enforcement.
4: Comparisons show that the strand of hair from the assailant's scalp is exactly the same as the hair of one suspect being held by police.
5: The FBI pioneered hair analysis
2: and used the technique across the country for over 50 years. Hair microscopy involves two things. One is that A properly trained hair comparison expert can make an association between a hair found at a crime scene and a suspect hair.
6: Even a single hair may supply evidence.
2: And then two is, is it possible to give a scientifically valid estimate as to how rare or how common that association would be? So in other words, could one in five people have left this hair or one in five million people?
6: The examiner's trained eye can learn many things. Is it human hair? Of what race?
2: Animal hair? but family. It wasn't really until after World War II and the FBI set up a a professional crime lab where the evidence really began to take a foothold in prosecution of criminal cases.
7: From a microscopic examination of hairs, we can determine race, body area...
2: We really have no idea how um, the characteristics of hair are distributed in the population. What's incredible and what would surprise people is that Hairs on your head are not the same. That there's variation in one individual's hair.
3: The hairs on your head are quite different depending on where they're selected.
2: Dr. Terry Milton
5: is the founder of Mitotyping Technologies, a DNA lab in Pennsylvania. She conducted the test that led to Joseph Sledge's exoneration.
3: If you think about the way microscopy is done on a hair, Someone is deciding what color is that hair. Microscopy is a very subjective science and DNA is exactly the opposite. You have ATCGT and in the other sample you have ATCGT. You line those 800 DNA bases up next to each other, there's no gray area.
5: When scientists figured out how to extract DNA from hairs in the late 1990s, the FBI stopped relying on hair comparison evidence. But by that point, the Bureau had introduced it at trials for decades, influencing thousands of convictions. The idea that there might be problems with FBI forensics is nothing new. Twenty years ago, an agent named Frederick Whitehurst blew the whistle on the science lab there, saying there were major problems then. He now's out of the FBI, and he lives here in Bethel, North Carolina. We're on our way to meet him now. Frederick Whitehurst is a forensic scientist who joined the FBI lab Lawrence? in 1986. Nice to meet you, fellow. Thanks. We're
0: putting human beings in cages and death chambers, fellow fellow citizens, based on garbage. In the mid 1990s,
5: Whitehurst alleged that over a dozen FBI agents had performed false or sloppy forensic work.
6: Whitehurst, you may remember, was the FBI chemist who blew the whistle on shoddy work at the bureau's famed crime lab.
5: I'm a law enforcement officer, and if I see violations of the law, uh, abuses of authority, corruption, or whatever, I'm required to report those. In response to Whitehurst's claims, in 1997, the Inspector General of the Justice Department released a bombshell report. The Justice Department's final
6: report documented example after example of what it called scientifically flawed and inaccurate testimony. And I think it is highly inappropriate for the FBI to manipulate scientific data in order to obtain a conviction. The Justice Department realized there
5: were broader implications. David Colapinto is Fred Whitehurst's lawyer who closely monitored the Justice Department's response. And what they
6: did was they set up a force of, a task force of criminal lawyers to go through and review all of the cases handled by 12 or 13 examiners mentioned in the IG report. In the
5: wake of the report, the Justice Department vowed to review all cases called into question, including hundreds involving hair and fiber evidence. Even more disturbing, the Bureau
6: acknowledged the findings have prompted a review of hundreds of other cases for possible faulty lab work.
5: Justice officials insist they will give defendants anything where there is even the slightest doubt it could help them. But seven years later, in 2004, the DOJ ended the review. It never issued a final report, and it never notified the defendants whose cases were under review or their attorneys. In the hair cases in question, not a single conviction
6: was overturned. The Justice Department and the FBI were officially stating that they had looked at the cases and they had found nothing and no one's uh, convictions had been
4: overturned. There's a whole lot of people all over this country in the same situation.
5: In 2012, the Department of Justice promised finally to conduct a thorough review. It has since identified nearly 2,500 cases in which hair comparison evidence was crucial to conviction. In the cases reviewed so far, the Justice Department found that 26 out of 28 FBI examiners made false claims at trial. So we can now say,
6: based on a statistically sizable sample of cases that they have reviewed, that they were wrong 95% of the
5: time. The Department of Justice and the FBI refuse to speak on camera for this program. Publicly they say they will notify defendants' counsel in cases they review. But they will not release the names of those defendants to the public. At least 14 of them have already been executed or died of old age. There's a lot of lives
4: at stake. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of lives at stake, a lot of innocent people.
6: Why? Why is there no sense of urgency? There really needs to be a sense of urgency. People are dying in prison.
0: Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, January 13, 2022. So I have been told We say replace white supremacy with justice immediately, as soon as possible. Sense of urgency. This is the book club, our fifth installment on Alice Siebold's Lucky. We are almost done. I think we might have maybe two sessions left. It's not a big book, so closing in on the conclusion we could be thinking of the next book uh the audio segments that we heard the very first segment wow (laughs) context of white supremacy so we've been on the air for it'll be 13 years if we make it to february 21 2022 that first audio segment mr chet detlinger the late chet dangler i've jet Chet Detlinger, I believe he passed away in 2010. He was a guest on The Cows February 21, 2009. Our very first program once we got back on the air. Uh, we talked about the so-called Atlanta child murders and the conviction of Wayne Williams. A big part of his conviction was based on carpet fiber evidence presented at the trial to say oh yeah this is consistent we got a match carpet fibers he did it mr detlinger came on the program and said man all this nonsense about the labs and you heard what he said they come in there with that white lab coat on And oh yeah this is gospel and oh yeah we went under our microscope and we got the information and oh yeah he did it absolutely wash and then specifically now why is all this relevant for the book that we're reading now the section that we read last week Alice Ebold writes Negroid pubic hair recovered from pubic combings of Alice Bold, May 1981 had been compared the lab found that on 17 points of microscopic comparison the hairs had matched on all 17. on november 18 gail drafted an inter-office letter for the files she posted it on the 23rd there is no question this was a rape victim was a virgin and the hymen was torn in two places I'm stopping right there just because all of this together the hair science is absolutely ludicrous this is another reference negroid really do people say negroid in 99 and then uh our, one of our investors wrote that in last week i didn't even think about that like the whole she's a virgin and her hymen was broken like there's no way to do a medical dete- uh, test to determine if someone uh is a virgin so this is just all going on her testimony and saying that she is uh, which I said is just a part of that white purity, white innocence, white racism. Anyway, so that was Chet Detlinger. And uh, the segment from Fault Lines, Al Jazeera, they have a documentary under the microscope, the FBI hair case. Uh, and you just heard all of the nonsense uh, where they just get to go in and it was all black males. They had a number of defendants who had served some of them had served decades 25 years in prison for rapes and murders and things where some white person came in with their lab coat. Oh, yeah, we got the hairs. Absolute match. Oh, yeah, this is the person. Hogwash. Anyway, so keep all that in mind as we proceed. In addition to all of that, keep in mind where we left off at last week. We left off in chapter 10. Thank you, Rick James. What were we talking about last week? Let me make sure i refresh everyone this is where we left off at we left off alicebo was with jamie white man they're about to hook up she says all of his promiscuity made him more glamorous but what i really liked about jamie was his no-bullshit factor he ate and belched he slept around he'd lost his virginity way before i had he was something like 14 and she was older rape I never had a chance he would say take a sip of beer from a long neck or wine from a glass and snort. Gleefully he joked about how many women he'd had and told stories about being caught with married women by their husbands. Fred James Alice Sebold Lucky Context of White Supremacy. This is audio segment one.
3: Jamie said he guessed I was new enough, so he should offer me a drink. He had an open bottle of white wine in the fridge and two dirty wine glasses. He held the glasses under the tap, and then filled both with wine. I took my dripping glass and sipped. You can put your bag down, he said. Music would make this easier, huh? He walked into the living area and crouched down over a milk crate of tapes. He picked up, scanned, and tossed back two or three. I put my book bag near the front door. He chose Bob Dylan, the kind of slow, stalling melodies that always made me feel as if the dead were rattling their chains. I wasn't a Dillon fan, but I knew enough not to say anything. Don't stand there like a statue, he said, turning and coming closer. Kiss me. Something in my kiss displeased him. Look, you wanted this, he said. Don't clam up now. He suggested I go and brush my teeth. I said I would, but I didn't have a toothbrush. Haven't you ever stayed over at a guy's place before? Yes, I lied, sheepishly. What did you do then? I used my finger, I said, thinking quickly, and brushed my teeth that way. Jamie walked past me and into the bathroom and found a toothbrush. Use it, he said. If you fuck someone, you should be able to use their toothbrush. Frightened and drunk and bumbling, I grasped onto this logic. I went into the bathroom and brushed my teeth. I threw water on my face and worried, for just a second, if I looked pretty. But as soon as I looked in the mirror, I looked away. I could not watch what I was doing. I swallowed hard, breathed in, and left the bathroom. Jamie was moving dirty laundry off the mattress on the floor of the bedroom. His sheets were soiled, and various blankets lay twisted in knots and balls where they had landed when kicked away. He'd turned Dylan up. His ski boots lay outside the door on their sides. He'd brought my wine into the bedroom and put it by his clock radio on the milk crate next to the mattress. He pulled his shirt off over his head. I'd seen very few men's bodies before. His seemed scrawnier than I had imagined, and freckled. The waistband of his long underwear had lost its elasticity and spilled out over the top of his pants. "'Are you planning to keep your clothes on?' he asked. "'I'm self-conscious.' There's no time for that, he said. I've got to get up for Spanish in the morning and then I'm long hauling to Vermont. Let's get the show on the road. Somehow we did. Somehow I lay under him as he fucked me. He fucked me hard. It was what I later heard girls call athletic sex. I held on. When he came, he came loudly and snorted and bellowed. I wasn't prepared for it. I wept. I wept louder than I ever could have imagined. I shook with it. He stopped his noises and he held tightly to me. I felt humiliated, but I couldn't stop. I don't think he knew that he was what I considered my first, but he was smart enough to know where the crying stemmed from. Poor baby, he said. Poor, poor baby. Soon after, he passed out on top of me. I stayed awake all night. In the early morning, he wanted to have sex again. But first, after kissing me, he pushed me down near his penis. Once there, I didn't know what to do. Haven't you ever done this before, he asked. I tried, but gagged. Come up here, he said, releasing me. We kissed some more, and concerned with a look he saw in my eye, he grabbed me by my hair and pulled my head away from his. Look, he said, don't do that. Don't fall in love with me. I didn't know what he meant or how to respond to the reprimand. I said I wouldn't, but I didn't know how not to. He drove me back to Haven. Take care of yourself, kiddo, he said. He didn't want responsibility. He'd had enough of it nursing his father. He went off to class and then to ski. Well, I did it. I wrote on Lila's memo board hanging on the outside of her door. I knew she was asleep and was thankful for it. I hadn't slept in over 24 hours. I went to my room. I needed time to make it sound good. When I woke in the late afternoon, it was over. I had lost my real virginity. Everything had functioned, if not exactly perfectly, and I had been accepted by a man. Of course... I did what he told me not to do. I fell in love with him. I did make a good story out of it. I laughed at myself, my fumbling. I got drunk. I called Chris and told him. He loved it. He screamed, you bag the prize. I acted experienced and wise around Lila while we ate Swiss almond vanilla haagen Jamie didn't call me. I reasoned I would see him after Easter that cool people, like the two of us, didn't need things like rings or flowers or phone calls. I packed for the trip home to Pennsylvania. I hid a bottle of Absolute in my red, bottom-of-the-line Samsonite. I was fine. In late April, a month after Easter break, I was on Marshall Street. It was mid-afternoon. Spring had finally come to upstate New York in that peekaboo way that it does. There was still old snow on the ground. Each winter, the snow made Syracuse beautiful. It covered the gritty northeastern browns and grays of the buildings and roads. But by April, everyone had had enough of it, and the warmth was celebrated by the students. They wore shorts, despite the fact that goosebumps rose up and down their arms and legs, and the girls showed off their Florida tans. The street was crowded and with the anticipation of the end of classes that meant the start of good times, students were smiling and laughing and buying SU paraphernalia in the stores on Marshall Street. I had gone shopping for my sister. She was graduating magna cum laude from Penn. As I walked up Marshall, a group of fraternity boys and their girlfriends were coming my way. They were all bright spring smiles. Two of the boys flaunted their toughness by wearing white starched boxer shorts with the standard no-sock docksiders on their feet. I looked at them because I had to. They were covering the sidewalk and begging for attention. But there was someone trying to get by them on the other side. I grew up watching Bewitched, in which the Elizabeth Montgomery character was able to snap her fingers and freeze everyone but herself and her husband Darren. They continued talking while the frozen people stayed still in their awkward, formerly animated poses. That was how it felt that day. I saw Gregory Madison, blocked by this crowd, and then he saw me. Everything else stopped. I don't know why I hadn't thought this could happen, but I hadn't. I still envisioned him in jail, or at least not stupid enough to come back to the university area before the trial. But there he was. In October, he had been cocksure when he spotted me. Now we saw each other, recognized each other, and nodded. No words. It was a split second. The happy frat boys and girls stood between us. We passed by them on either side. His eyes told me what I needed to know. I had become his opponent now, no longer merely his victim. This he recognized. Lila and I had begun, sometime that winter, to call each other clone. We both gained from it. By being my clone, she could seem a bit more daring and wild than she really was. I could pretend that I was a normal college co-ed whose life revolved as much around my classes and food runs to Marshall Street as it did a rape trial. As clones, we decided to room together off campus. The two of us and a friend of Lila's named Sue found a three-bedroom apartment in an off-campus area where many students lived. We were excited about living in a real house and, certain the trial would have to be over by then, I saw this as a fresh start. We would take possession in the fall. By the first week of May, I was packing to go home for the summer. I'd gotten a B in my Shakespeare class and said goodbye to Jamie. I had no illusions that I would hear from him. I had taken a course called Cervantes in English in which, for the final paper, I took my revenge on the myth of La Mancha. I reinterpreted Don Quixote as a modern urban parable and made Sancho the hero. He was street smart, where Quixote was not. In my version, Quixote drowns in a curbside puddle, unable to realize it is not a lake. Before I left, I called Gail to let her know my schedule. All spring, the office of the district attorney had given me an any-minute-now rap, and this time was no different. She thanked me and asked me about my plans. I'll get a summer job, I guess, I said. I'm hoping we'll go to trial soon, she said. You will be available, won't you? It's my number one priority, I said, not putting it together until years later In rape cases, it was almost expected that the victim would drop out of the process, even if she originally initiated it. Alice, let me ask you something, she said, her tone shifting a bit. Yes? Will you have someone with you from home? I don't know, I said. I talked to my parents about this during the Christmas holidays, and then again at Easter. My mother had spoken to her psychiatrist, Dr. Graham, about it, and my father fretted that the longer the trial was postponed, the greater the chance it would ruin his annual trip to Europe. Until recently, I believed that their final decision, that he would be the one who came with me, was based on her own inability to be there, the unpredictable chances of a flap. But as it turned out, Dr. Graham had counseled her to go, despite her panic. In the phone call in which my mother told me how the decision had ultimately been made, I stayed quiet. I asked the questions a reporter would ask. Numbly, I gathered the information. My mother was peeved at Graham, she said, because, of course, Graham would, quote, support the professional, i.e. your father, end quote. So Dad didn't want to come with me either, I asked, playing out what she'd begun. Of course not. His precious Spain awaited. What I came away with was the fact that neither one of them had wanted to be at the trial with me, They had their reasons. I acknowledged these. Finally, it was decided. My father would come with me. I held out a small corner of hope up until the moment my father and I boarded the plane that my mother would park her car in the long-term lot and rush in. No matter how tough my pose, I both wanted and needed her. By the close of her senior year, Mary had mastered 15 Arab dialects and won a full scholarship to study at the University of Damascus in Syria. I was both jealous and in awe. I made my first but not my last joke about our respective majors. Yours may be Arabic, I said. It looks like mine is rape. Mary excelled academically in a way I never could, perhaps in a way I was too distracted to ever attempt. But the truth was, Mary had been escaping via academics for a long time. Raised in a house where my mother's problems provided the glue of family, she patterned herself after my father. Learn a language of another country, and then you can go to that country, a place where the problems of your family will not follow, a language they do not speak. I had not quite given up on the idea of the blissful sibling relationship that my mother wanted for us, but events always conspired, it seemed, to make this impossible. The city of Syracuse scheduled testimony to begin on May 17th, the same day as my sister's commencement ceremony at Penn. I continually stole her spotlight, whether I wanted to or not. I talked to Gail. They could not reschedule the trial, but they would lead with the other witnesses and somehow work it so I could testify on the second day. My father and I booked a flight for the evening of the 17th. Directly after Mary's graduation, my mother would drop us off at the Philadelphia airport. Until then, my mother, father, and I agreed Mary's day would be our focus. My mother, Mary, and I went clothes shopping, Mary for a dress to wear to graduation, me for an outfit for the trial. Both my sister and I had strayed far from the way we were dressed as children, my mother having a penchant for the colors of the flag. Mary went toward dark greens and creams. I went to black and blue. But for the trial, I ceded my gothic tendencies to my mother. I put her firmly in control. I would wear, as it resulted, a red blazer, a white blouse, a blue skirt. In the evening, on the 16th, my father and I packed. On the 17th, we all dressed in our separate rooms and prepared for the drive down to Penn. I took a last look in my mirror. Whatever the trial's result, my part in it would be over by the time I saw myself there again. I was going to Syracuse and would meet and see many people, but all I thought about was the one appointment I had to keep. I had a date with Gregory Madison, As I opened the door of my bedroom, I breathed deeply. I shut myself off. I turned myself on. I was Mary's little sister, excited, ebullient, alive. At the ceremony, my father would march in his Princeton colors. Mary and he stood with us in the crowded lobby of the auditorium, where mothers and fathers fussed over the last-minute set of mortarboards and one woman, unhappy with her daughter's mascara, spit-washed the black flecks from under her eyes. Extended families surrounded the happy graduates. Flash bulbs popped, and self-conscious girls and boys tried to make mortarboards look less than nerdy by tilting them on their heads. My grandmother, mother, and I found our seats on the main floor to the side of the large body of graduating students. I stood on my chair to find Mary. I spotted her smiling beside another girl, a friend of hers I didn't know. After the ceremony, we celebrated with a lunch at the faculty club. My mother took too many pictures of us on the concrete benches outside. My mother still has an enlargement framed and mounted from that day. I used to wish that she would take it down, but it commemorates an important day in our family, my sister's graduation, my rape trial. I don't remember the airport I remember the rush from a day of celebration into the onset of dread once in Syracuse we were met by detective John Murphy from the DA's office this man with prematurely gray hair and a friendly smile approached my father and me as we located the signs for the main terminal you must be Alice he said and extended his hand yes how had he known me he introduced himself to my father and to me, told us his job, to act as our escort over the next 24 hours, and offered to carry my bag. As we walked briskly toward the exit, he explained our accommodations and that Gail would meet us in the cafe in the lobby. She wants to go over the testimony, he said. Finally, I asked, how did you know who I was? He looked blankly at me. They showed me some photos. I would have hoped I looked better than that, if they're the photos you mean. My father was tense. He walked at a remove from us. You're a beautiful girl. You can tell that even in those photos, Murphy said. He was smooth. He knew the answers to give and the things to say. In the county car on the way to the hotel, Murphy talked over his shoulder to my father making eye contact with him in the rear view at lights and turns. "'Follow sports, Mr. Siebold? he asked. My father did not. Murphy tried fishing. My father did his best here, but had little to go on. If Murphy had gotten up at 5 a.m. to study Cicero, they might have had something to start with. We ended up on Madison. "'Even in holding,' Murphy said, "'I might go up there and say thanks to a guy.'" Act all friendly with them. Then I leave. That gets them in trouble with the other inmates. Makes them look like an informer. I'll do that to that puke if you want. I don't remember my response, if I had any. I was aware of my father's discomfort, and, in turn, aware that my own comfort with such talk had grown during the last year. I liked men like Murphy. Their quick, exact talk. Their no-bones-about-it demeanor. They don't like rapists, Murphy informed my father. It can go rough on them. They hate child molesters the most, but rapists aren't much above. My father acted interested, but I think he was scared. He found talk like this distasteful. He liked to be in control of a discussion, and if he wasn't, he usually opted out. This meant his paying attention itself was something out of the ordinary. You know, my girlfriend's name is Alice, Murphy said. Really, my father said, taking interest. Yep, we've been together for some time now. When I heard your daughter's name was Alice, I had a good feeling about this case. We're quite fond of the name ourselves, my father said. I told Detective Murphy about how my father had wanted to name me Hephzibah, that it was only because of my mother's vehement objection that the idea died. He liked this. It made him laugh, and I repeated the name until he got it right. "'That's a doozy,' he said. "'You lucked out.' We turned on to the main street of Syracuse's downtown. In May, it was still light at 7.30 p.m., but the stores were closed. We passed by Foley's department store. The cursive script and old brass security gates comforted me. Up on our left, I could see the marquee for the Hotel Syracuse, It, too, belonged to a more prosperous past. The old lobby was bustling. John Murphy checked us in at the reservation desk and showed us where the restaurant was. He told us he would return for us at nine the following morning. Have dinner. Gail said she'd be by sometime around eight o'clock tonight. He handed me a blue folder. This is material she thought it might be useful for you to go over. My father thanked him earnestly for his escort. No problem, Mr. Siebold Murphy said. I'm off to see my own Alice now. We parked our bags in the room upstairs and returned to the lobby. I didn't want to eat, but I did want a drink. In the bar area of the restaurant, my father and I sat at a small round table. We ordered gin and tonics. Your mother doesn't have to know, he said. Gin and tonics were my father's drink. When I was eleven, I had watched him drink an entire pitcher on the day President Nixon resigned. My father went off to call my mother. She and her own mother and my sister would be sitting tight, she said, waiting for any news. While he was gone, I opened the blue folder. On top was a copy of my testimony from the preliminary hearing. I hadn't seen it before. I read over it, covering the pages I went with the folder itself. I didn't want anyone there, the young businessmen, the older salesman, and the sole professional woman, to see what I held in my hands. My father returned, trying not to disturb me while I was going over my words. He pulled out a small book in Latin that he'd brought from home. That doesn't look like good dinner material. I looked up. It was Gail. She was pointing to the blue folder. At three weeks before her projected delivery date, she wore a blue maternity T-shirt, tan corduroy pants, and running shoes. She had her glasses on, which I hadn't seen before, and she carried a briefcase with her. You must be Dr. Siebold, she said. Score one for Gale," I thought. I had told her once that my father was a Ph.D. and hated being called Mr. My father stood up to shake her hand. Call me Bud, he said. He offered to get her a drink. She said water would be fine, and as he went to the bar, she sat down beside me, bracing her arm on the back of the chair as she lowered herself down. Boy, you're really pregnant, I said. You can say that again. I'm ready for the arrival. Billy Mastine, she said, referring to the district attorney, gets the case because the sight of a pregnant woman makes the judge nervous. She was laughing, but I didn't like it. I never considered anyone else my attorney. She, not the district attorney, had driven over on her off hours to review the case. She was my lifeline, and the idea that she was being punished for being pregnant seemed another anti-woman maneuver to me. You know Husa, your GYN. She's pregnant, too. Eight months. Paquette is going to bust. All us pregnant ladies surrounding him. Cross-examining us makes them look bad. My father returned, and we got down to business. She excused herself to my father, saying that she didn't mean to be rude. Billy and I think that his attorney might go with an impotency defense. My father listened hard. He played with the two onions at the bottom of his second drink, a Gibson. How can they prove that, I asked, and Gail and I laughed. We imagined them bringing a doctor in to testify to the fact. Gail broke down the three kinds of rapists. In all the studies they've done, it seems like Gregory fits into the most common one. He's a power rapist. The others are anger rapists and the worst, sadistic. What does that mean, I asked. Power rapists are often unable to sustain an erection and are only able to do so once they feel they've completely physically and mentally dominated their victim. He might have a bit of the sadistic thrown in. We found it interesting that he was able to finally have an erection once he'd made you kneel in front of him and give him a blowjob. If I noticed my father at all, it was only to will myself not to worry about him. I told him a lot of lies, I said, about how strong he was, and when he lost his erection, I told him it wasn't his fault, that I wasn't good at it. That's right, Gail said. That would make him think he had dominated you. With Gail, I could be completely myself, say anything. My father sat beside us as we talked. Occasionally, if Gale sensed his interest or his confusion, she made a gesture of inclusion. I asked her how much time Madison would get if convicted. You know, we offered him a plea. No, I said. Two to six, but he didn't take it. If you ask me, his attorney is too cocky. It goes tougher on them if they refuse a plea and are then found guilty at trial. What's the maximum he can get? On the rape charge, eight and a third to 25. 25 years? Right, but he's eligible for parole at eight and a third. In Arab countries, they cut off people's hands and feet, my father said. Gail, who was of Lebanese descent, smiled. An eye for an eye, huh, bud? she said. "'Exactly,' said my father. "'Sometimes it seems fairer, but we have the law here.' "'Alice told me about the lineup, "'how he could have his friends stand next to him. "'That doesn't seem right.' "'Oh,' Gail said, smiling, "'don't worry about Gregory. "'Whatever he was given, he might manage to screw up.' "'Will he testify?' I asked. "'That depends on you. "'If you're as strong as you were at the prelim and grand jury, "'Paquette will have to have him take the stand.' What can he say? He'll deny it. Say he wasn't there on May 8th. Doesn't remember where he was. They'll create a story for October. Clapper saw him, and Paquette's not stupid enough to have his client deny speaking to a cop. So I say it happened, and he says it didn't? Yes, it's your word against his, and this is a non-jury trial. What does that mean? It means Judge Gorman serves as both judge and jury. It was Gregory's choice. They worried about the superficials swaying citizens on a jury. By this time, I knew what the superficials were and knew they stood in my favor. I was a virgin. He was a stranger. It had happened outside. It was night. I wore loose clothes and could not be proven to have behaved provocatively. There were no drugs or alcohol in my system. I had no former involvement with the police of any kind, not even a traffic ticket. He was black and I was white. There was an obvious physical struggle. I had been injured internally. Stitches had to be taken. I was young and a student at a private university that brought revenue to the city. He had a record and had done time. She checked her watch and then, suddenly, reached out and grabbed my hand. Feel that, she said, putting my hand up against her belly. I felt her baby kick. A soccer player, she said smiling she told me that mine was not the only charge Gregory faced he had an outstanding charge for an aggravated assault against a police officer while out on bail since Christmas she said he had also been arrested for a burglary we went over the preliminary and some affidavits dating back to the night of the rape she told me that the police had already testified Clapper got up there and talked about knowing Gregory from around the neighborhood indicating he had former knowledge of him. If Madison takes the stand, Billy will try to go after that. Here my father was paying close attention. So his record could be used, he asked. Nothing juvenile, she said. That's not admissible. But we'll make an attempt to establish that Greg is no stranger to the police. If he trips up and mentions it himself, then we can ask. I described the outfit my mother and I had bought. Gail approved. A skirt is important, she said. I don't go anywhere near a courtroom in slacks. Gorman is particular on this point. Billy once got thrown out of his courtroom for wearing madras plaid. Gail stood up. I have to get this one home, she said, indicating her stomach. Be direct, she said to me. Be clear, and if you're confused, look over at that prosecution table. I'll be sitting right there. That night was one of the worst in my memory for physical pain. I had begun during the year to have migraine headaches, although I didn't know they were migraines at the time. I had hid the fact I'd had them from my parents. I remember standing in the hotel bathroom and realizing I was going to have one that night. I could feel the drum beating in the back of my head as I brushed my teeth and dressed for bed. Over the rush of water, I heard my father calling my mother to report on Gale. Having met her, he was flooded with relief. But that night, as my headache grew worse, my father became frantic. I felt the pain most acutely in my eyes. I couldn't open or close them. I was sweating intensely and alternated between sitting bent over on the edge of one of the beds, rocking my head in my hands, and pacing back and forth between the balcony window and the bed. My father hovered. He fired questions at me. What is it? Where is the pain? Should I get a doctor? Maybe we should call your mother. I didn't want to talk because it hurt. My eyes, my eyes, I moaned. I can't see. They hurt so much, Dad. My father decided that I needed to cry. Cry, he said. Cry. I begged him to leave me alone, but he was convinced he'd found the key. Cry, he said. You need to cry. Cry. That's not it, Dad. Yes, it is, he said. You are refusing to cry and you need to. Now cry. You just can't will me to cry, I said to him. Crying doesn't win a trial. I went to the bathroom to throw up and closed the door against him. Eventually, out in the other room, he fell asleep. I stayed in the bathroom with the lights on and then off trying to soothe or shock my eyes back to their normal state. In the early morning hours, I sat on the edge of the bed as the headache began to lift. I read the Bible from the drawer beside my bed as a way to test that I hadn't begun to go blind. The nausea hung on. Gail met us in the hotel cafe at 8. John Murphy arrived and sat with my father. Gail and Murphy tag-teamed me. I drank coffee and picked at the scales of a croissant. "'Whatever you do,' Murphy said, "'don't look him in the eyes. Am I right, Gail?' I sensed she didn't want to get this aggressive, this fast. "'He'll look at you real mean. Try and throw you off,' Murphy said. "'When they ask you to point him out, stare in the direction of the table.' "'Agreed,' Gail said. "'Will you be there?' I asked Murphy. "'Your father and I will be sitting in the gallery,' he said. "'Right, Bud?' It was time to drive to the Onondaga courthouse. Gail went in her own car. We would see her there. Murphy, my father, and I went in the official county car. Inside the building, Murphy led us toward the courtroom, but stopped us midway down. We'll wait here until we're called, he said. You okay, bud? Fine, thank you, my father said. Alice? As good as I can be, I said but I was thinking of only one thing. Where is he? That's why I stopped you here, Murphy confided, to avoid any run-ins. Gale came out of the courtroom and advanced toward us. Here's Gail, Murphy said. We've got a closed courtroom. What's that, I asked. It means Paquette is trying to do what he did in the lineup. He's closing the courtroom so you can't have family sit in. I don't understand, my father said. He wouldn't let Tricia stay in the lineup, I said to my dad. I hate him, I said. He's a slimy asshole. Murphy smiled. How can he do that, my father asked. The defendant has the right to request a courtroom be closed if he thinks it will rob the witness of support, Gale said. Look on the bright side. Gregory's father is here, too. By closing the court, he won't have his father there, either. How could he support a rapist, anyway? It's his son, Murphy said quietly. Gail walked back to the courtroom. It might be easier for you without your father there, Murphy offered. Some of what you'll have to say is harder in front of family. I wanted to ask why, but I knew what he was saying. No father wanted to hear the story of how a stranger shoved his whole hand up his daughter's vagina. Detective Murphy and my father stood facing me. Murphy offered words of condolence to my father. He pointed to a bench nearby, saying they could wait right there the whole time. My father had brought a small, leather-bound book along. In the distance, I saw Gregory Madison walking toward the courtroom. He had come from the hallway perpendicular to the one where I stood. I looked at him for a second. He did not see me. He was moving slowly. He wore a light gray suit, Paquette and another white man were with him. I waited a second and then interrupted my father and Detective Murphy. Do you want to see him? I asked my dad. I grabbed his arm to make him turn. There he is, Dad. But it was just Madison's back now, entering the courtroom, a flash of gray polyester suit. He's smaller than I thought, my father said. There was a beat, a silence. Murphy rushed in, but wide, "'Believe me, he's all muscle. "'Did you see his shoulders?' I asked my dad. "'I'm sure my father had imagined Madison as towering. "'Then I saw another man. "'He had a softer version of his son's build, "'white hair around the temples. "'He hesitated for a moment near the courtroom door, "'then spotted our little group down the hall. "'I didn't point him out to my father. "'Murphy's earlier comment had made me see him differently.' After a second and a look at me, he disappeared back down the other hall. He must have realized who I was. I didn't see him again, but I remembered him. Gregory Madison had a father. It was a simple fact, but it stayed with me. Two fathers, both of them helpless to control their children's lives, would sit out the trial in their separate hallways. The courtroom door opened. A bailiff stood in the open doorway and made eye contact with Murphy. You're up, Alice, Murphy said. Remember, don't look at him. He'll be sitting at the defense table. When you turn around, look for Bill Mastine. The bailiff came to get me. He looked like a cross between a theater usher and someone in the military. Detective Murphy and he nodded to each other. The pass-off. I reached for my father's hand. Good luck, he said. I turned. I was glad for Murphy. I thought suddenly that if my father were to go to the men's room, he might bump into Mr. Madison. Murphy would keep this from happening. I let it come now, the thing that had been burning at the corners of my temples the night before and boiled beneath the surface all that year. Rage. I was frightened and shaking when I crossed the courtroom, past the defense table, the judge at the podium, the prosecution table, and came to take the stand. I like to think I was Madison's worst nightmare, although he didn't know it yet. I represented an 18-year-old virgin co-ed. I was dressed in red, white, and blue. A female bailiff, middle-aged and wearing wire-framed glasses, assisted me up onto the stand. I turned around. Gale was seated at the prosecution table. Mastine was standing. I was aware of other people, but I didn't look at them. The bailiff held a Bible in front of me. Place your hand on the Bible, she said, and I repeated what I'd seen on TV a hundred times. I swear to tell the truth, so help me God. Be seated, the judge said. My mother had always taught us to be scrupulous when wearing a skirt by smoothing it out before sitting down. I did this, and as I did, I thought of what lay beneath the skirt and slip, still visible if I lifted up the hem through the flesh-toned stockings. That morning, while I dressed, I had written a note to myself on my skin. You will die was inked into my legs in dark blue ballpoint, and I didn't mean me. Mastine began. He asked me my name and address, where I was from. I barely remember answering him. I was getting the lay of the land. I knew exactly where Madison sat, but I didn't look at him. Paquette cleared his throat, rustled papers. Mastine asked me where I went to school, what year I had just finished there. He took a moment to close the window, first asking permission of Judge Gorman. Then he led me back in time. Where was I living in May of 1981? He directed my attention to the events of May 7, 1981 and the early hours of May 8, 1981. I went into minute detail and, this time, did as Gail had told me to. I took each question slowly. Did he say anything to you by way of a threatening nature while you were screaming and while the struggle was taking place? He said he would kill me if I didn't do what he said. Paquette stood. I am sorry. I can't hear. I repeated myself. He said that he would kill me if I did not do what he said. A few minutes later, I began to stumble. Mastine had led me up and now into the amphitheater tunnel. What happened there? He told me to... that he was... Well, I figured out by that time that he was... didn't want my money... It was a shaky start to the most important story I would ever tell. I began a sentence only to trail off and begin again, and this wasn't because I was unaware of exactly what had happened in the tunnel. It was saying the words out loud, knowing it was how I said them that could win or lose the case. Then he made me lie down on the ground, and he took his pants off and left his sweatshirt on, and he started fondling my breasts and kissing them and doing things like that, and he was very interested in the fact that I was a virgin. He kept asking me about it, so he used his hands in my vagina. I was breathing shallowly now. The bailiff beside me became more and more alert. Mastine did not want the fact of my virginity to go by unnoted. Stop for a second, he said. Had you ever had sexual intercourse with anyone at that time of your life? I felt shame. No, I said, I had not. Continue, said Mastine, stepping back again. I talked uninterrupted for nearly five minutes. I described the assault, the blowjob, talked about how cold I was, detailed the robbery of $8 from my back pocket, his kiss goodbye, his apology, our parting. And he said, hey, girl. I turned around. He said, what is your name? I said, Alice. Mastine needed specifics. He asked about penetration. He asked how many times it had occurred, if more than once. It would be ten times because, or something to that effect, because he kept putting it in there, and then it kept falling out. So that is in there, right? I am sorry, that is entering, right? My innocence seemed to embarrass them. Mastine, the judge, the bailiff beside me. So in any event, he did have penetration. Yes. Next, more questions on lighting. Then the photo exhibits, photos of the scene. Did you receive any injuries as a result of this attack? I detailed these injuries. Were you bleeding when you left the scene? Yes, I was. I am showing you the photographs marked for identification 13, 14, 15, 16. Look at those, please. He handed me the photos. I looked only briefly at them. Are you familiar with the person depicted in those photographs? Yes, I am, I said. I placed them on the edge of the stand, away from me. Who is the me? I interrupted him. I began to cry. By trying not to, I made it worse. I sputtered. Are those photographs true and accurate portrayals of how you appeared after the attack on the evening of May 8th, 1981? I was uglier, yes, but they are true portrayals. The bailiff went to hand me a glass of water. I reached for it, but my grasp wasn't sure, and it fell. I'm sorry, I said to the bailiff, crying more now. I tried to dab at her wet lapels with a Kleenex from the box she held. You're doing fine. Breathe, the steely bailiff said. This made me think of the emergency room nurse on the night of the rape. Good, you got a piece of him. I was lucky. People were pulling for me. Do you want to continue, the judge asked me. We can take a short break. I will continue. I cleared my throat and wiped my eyes. Now I held a Kleenex balled up in my lap, something I had not wanted to be reduced to. Can you tell us what clothing you were wearing that evening? I was wearing a pair of jeans and a blue work shirt and an Oxford type of shirt and a cable knit cardigan sweater that was tan and moccasins and underwear. Mastine had been standing near the prosecution table. Now he stepped forward holding a clear plastic bag. I am showing you a large bag which is marked exhibit number 18. Would you take a look at the contents of that bag and tell us if you are familiar with them? He held the bag in front of me. I had not seen these clothes since the night of the rape. My mother's sweater, shirt, and jeans that I had borrowed that afternoon were tightly packed inside. I took the bag from him and held it to one side. Yes. What are the contents of that bag? They looked to be the shirt and jeans and sweater that I had on. I don't see the underwear, but how about where your left hand is? I moved my hand. I had borrowed a pair of my mother's underwear. She wore nude. I wore white. This underwear was stained so thoroughly with blood that only one clean patch reminded me of this. Okay, my underwear, I said. They were received into evidence. Mastine finished up on the events of that day, He established that I had returned to Pennsylvania after failing to pick a photo out of the mug books at the Public Safety Building. We moved to the fall, noting my return day in September for the beginning of my sophomore year. I direct your attention now to October 5, 1981, the afternoon of that day. Do you recall the events of that day, that afternoon? I recall one particular event, yes. Is the person who attacked you in Thorndon Park, is he in court here today? Yes, he is. I did what I was warned not to. I focused my attention on Madison's face. I stared at him. For a few seconds, I was unaware of Mastine or of Gale or of the courtroom. Would you tell us where he is sitting and what he has on, I heard Mastine say. Before I spoke, Madison looked down. He is sitting next to the man with the brown tie, and he has a gray three-piece suit on, I said. I relish pointing out Paquette's ugly brown tie and identifying Madison not by his skin color, as I was expected to do, but by his clothes. Let the record reflect that the witness identified the defendant, Mastine said. For the remainder of the direct examination, I did not take my eyes off Madison for more than a second or two, I wanted my life back. Mastine spent a long time on the events of October 5th. I had to describe Madison on that day, what he looked like, what he said. Madison raised his head from the defense table only once. When he did and saw that I was still looking at him, he turned away and to the city of Syracuse outside the window. Mastine questioned me in detail about what Officer Clapper looked like, where he was standing. Had I seen Madison approach him? From what direction? Where did I go? Who did I call? Why the time discrepancy between seeing him and calling the police? Oh, he pointed out, the discrepancy was because I had appeared at class to tell my teacher I couldn't attend? Had naturally called my parents and told them what had happened? Had tried to wait for a friend to walk me home? All the things a good girl, he implied, might do after running into her rapist on the street. His purpose in all this was to make anything Paquette could go after in his cross moot. That was what made Clapper so important. If I had identified Clapper and he, in turn, had identified Madison, this made my case close to airtight. This was the key point of identification Mastine emphasized. What Mastine and Jubelair, what Paquette, Madison, and I all knew was that the lineup was the weak link. I had thought long and hard about what I was going to say. This time around, I would not pretend a command I did not have. Mastine had me detail my reasoning for ruling out the men I initially had. I took my time explaining the similarities between numbers 4 and 5 and how I hadn't been sure at the time I marked the box, but that I had chosen 5 because of the eye contact. At the time that you indicated it was number 5, were you in fact positive it was him No, I was not. Why did you mark the box, then? This was the single most important question of my case. I marked the box because I was very scared, and he was looking at me, and I saw the eyes, and the way the lineup is. It is not like it is on television, and you are standing right next to the person, and he looks like he is two feet away from you. He looked at me. I picked him. I could feel Judge Gorman's attention heighten. I watched Gale as I answered the questions Mastime put to me, tried to think of good things, of the baby floating inside her womb. Do you know to this day who that depicted? Number five? Yes, said Mastime. No, I said. Do you know which position the defendant was in, in the lineup? If I told the truth, I could say that the moment I picked number five, I knew I was wrong and had regretted it. That everything after that, from the mood in the lineup room to the relief on Paquette's face to the dark weight I felt on Lorenz in the conference room, had only confirmed my mistake. If I lied, if I said, no, I do not, I knew I would be perceived as telling the truth in my confusion between four and five. Identical twins, I had said to Tricia in the hallway. It's four, isn't it, were my first words to Lorenz. I knew the man who raped me sat across from me in the courtroom. It was my word against his. Do you know which position the defendant was in, in the lineup? No, I do not, I said. Judge Gorman held up his hand. He had the court reporter read over Mastine's last question and my answer to it. Mastine asked me if there was any other reason I felt scared or hurried during the lineup the attorney for the defendant hadn't let me have my rape, he wouldn't allow me to have my rape center counselor with me. Paquette objected. He believed this was irrelevant. Mastine continued. He asked me about the rape crisis center, about Tricia. I had met her on the day of my rape. He emphasized the connection. All of this went to why, in his mind, I had made my one and only mistake. This mistake, he wanted to make certain, should not invalidate what occurred on October 5th and the corroborating evidence of Officer Clapper. Is there any doubt in your mind, Miss Siebold that the person that you saw on Marshall Street is the same person that attacked you on May 8th in Thorndon Park? No doubt whatsoever, I said, and I had none. That is all I have at this point, Your Honor, Mastine said, turning to Judge Gorman. Gail gave me a wink. We will take about a five-minute recess, Judge Gorman said. I caution you, Miss Sebald, don't discuss your testimony now with anyone. This was what I had been promised, a break between direct and cross. I was assigned to the bailiff. She led me off to the right, through a door, down a short hall, and into a conference room. The bailiff was as friendly as she could be. "'How was I?' I asked. "'Why don't you sit down?' she said. I sat at the table. "'Can you just make a signal?' I asked. Suddenly I got the idea into my head that the room was bugged, a way to make sure that the rules were followed. "'Thumbs up or down?' "'I can't discuss the case. It will all be over soon.' We were quiet. I could now make out the traffic noise outside. I hadn't heard anything other than Mastine's questions while I testified.
8: The lineup, see the lineup, man, is a thing that like I used to be in Peoria, Illinois, it's a small town, so I'd be in a lineup for entertainment on Saturday nights, because there wasn't nothing to do. You know what I mean? Because ugly white women used to say they got raped by niggas. <laughs> I didn't know a nigger
4: raped
8: me. Yeah, and the guys be going, hey, you sure? <laughs> yeah, they go round up some niggas, you know, like, oh, you were down last week, you know what to do, don't you? Well, come on down again, will you? We got to have a lineup. (laughs) It was a lot of fun unless you got picked. That was (laughs) your ass.
0: Context of white supremacy the late Richard Pryor with the cameo. All right, so we are pausing. We will resume. I think we're in chapter 11. This book does not have numbers on the chapters either, but I think this is chapter 11. Anyway. Uh we'll pick up with the Judge Gorman re-enters uh to chat it up with Alice in the break from the trial. Context of white supremacy. The number to dial is seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pounds press star six one if you would like to participate the email until justice at gmail.com until justice at com. go right to the email one of our investors wrote in and then we'll hit the folks who dialed in star six one for the folks who are on the line One of our investors wrote in uh, from chapter 11. Greetings, Gus. Number one, uh, a joke about our prospective majors. Yours may be Arabic. Is this all? Make sure I didn't lose any of the note. Yours may be Arabic. I said it looks like mine is rape. The rape jokes are endless. Yes, they are. What is the significance of that? Hmm. Number two. I might go up there and say thanks to a guy. They don't like rapists. This is Murphy, right, talking to Alice and her dad. Nigger knocker by proxy. Ah, oh, that's a good one. I should have put the laugh track in there. Pretty good. Nigger knocker by proxy. Number three, I'd watched him drink an entire pitcher on the day President Nixon resigned. I guess this means he was disappointed that Nixon resigned. This is Alice's dad. 65 to 70% of white males in the U.S. have voted for Republicans consistently since 1965. So he could have been one of these white folks. Oh man, Tricky Dick, we love you. Number four, power rapist, anger rapist, and the worst kind, the sadistic rapist these don't seem like such clear distinctions I would agree even though I did find it significant he's not just a rapist he's a power rapist negro number five non jury trial Judge Gorman serves as both judge and jury defense lawyer Paquette was two years in practice appointed by the court there was no public defender system in the jurisdiction at the time Judge Gorman was described as a thoughtful and a competent adjudicator. New York Times article 2021, which apparently is why the defense Paquette recommended to not have a probably maybe even exclusively white jury trial. I can see the logic. Number six, I was dressed in red, white and blue, the colors of white supremacy, racism in that in the ISIS papers, Dr. Welsing talks about that, even breaking down the significance, the symbolism of those colors, the red, the white and the blue, the white, the pale skin. You can see the blue veins right through the melanin, lacking melanin deficient, pale skin. Uh, we're not lost. My number seven. If I told the truth, I could say that the moment I picked number five, I knew I was wrong. At the same time that you indicated it was number five, were you in fact positive it was him? If I lied, no, I was not. I marked the box because I was very scared and he was looking at me and I saw his eyes. So she admits she lied on the stand and I think she had kind of prepared us for all of this last week kind of justifying that she was going to play the game she knew the rules and she was going in there to get no count Madison like right she had said all that before let's see let's see number eight you were headed May 8th around midnight it was dark but not black didn't get that far yet we'll stop there we'll have to pick this all back up uh, once we get through the remainder of our reading for the week so we'll pause and come back to all of that Uh, let's see let's nab folks who dialed in folks who have commentary star six one if you have thoughts observations you would like to share let's see uh, one of the folks who graciously volunteered to narrate uh, Dread138 uh, should be with us. Dread138, comments uh, you want to share, sir?
4: Yes. Good evening. May I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Greetings, Gus. Good evening, callers and uh, participants. Um, continuing from um, some of my notes I had taken previously, um, Jenny Waller only older white male again, drunken, uh, drunken, promiscuous slob, but he's white, so it's all good. The whole sort of episode sex on stained linen, sharing, sharing toothbrush, drinking wine out of dirty glasses. Sibo's um, description of the evening reads like a sequel to the opening scene of um, her alleged rape, but he's white, so it's all good. I lost my real with my Janine. Everything had functioned, if not exactly purposefully, and I had been accepted by a man on page 186. Um, I was going home with a normal man, by most standards, an attractive one, and he was taking me there to make love for me, but he's white. It's all good. Um, Just something, uh, a comment I made, what does it mean to be white? Underage drinking, driving while impaired in slick, icy conditions. Sexual depravity, all while listening to Bob Dylan, poet, poet literate, poet lawyer, excuse me, and uh, just a note about um, Henry of Chicago, Henry from Chicago's um, compare and contrast into uh, to Anna Broly, and then I, I, I'm curious—is—is is it accurate that Mr. Broly had 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 a, a, a prior criminal record? I think he did not, and then. You know what I'm saying? There's such a focus on the performance, on all performance by CBO, by a testimony. And then just um, reiterating what you read from the um, email, Detective Murphy volunteers to set up up Madison Broadwater for mistreated by um, other prisoners. I'll mute my line.
0: Likely other black prisoners which is very common in the system of white supremacy. That's even in uh, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, his autobiography ready for revolution. uh, He talks about how they uh, white supremacists in Mississippi uh, got other black prisoners to beat up Fannie Lou Hamer long tradition of that sort of thing. That is an important point that he raised. Uh, Alice, there are so many points in this book that are either just plainly false the big one Anthony Broadwater exonerated but beyond all of that there are so many points in this book that are false questionable not logical contradictory like my god uh, I am so disgusted with the book I'm so disgusted non-white people and white people who've written reviews about this book both way before like because this book was published in 99 so people have been writing about this for decades And pretty much everybody who writes about this, it is deplorable. The white people just show their dedication to racism before the exoneration and after all the white people is tons of them who glow about this book. Oh, it's spectacular and five stars and oh, that Alice Evil. and even the victims before the exoneration and afterwards who've written about this. It is disgusting. One of those disgusting reports written by a victim. She does include the one tidbit. In fact the man the attorney said was Broadwater's friend this is from the lineup was someone he had met only hours before. Now that's a contradiction to what we heard here. And then in a tactic meant to reinforce her year old memory the DA tells her that Broadwater has a criminal history. So it may have been that the white person told her this information of which he did not. So this article that I'm reading here which is from thecut.com don't blame Alice Sebold he didn't have a criminal record and I think I've seen that elsewhere. In fact he was a U.S. Marine with an honorable discharge but that hasn't been mentioned at all in the book. So I would say definitely double check. There are reports that suggest no he did not have a criminal record. We've been lied to. Either Alice Sebold was lied to and she didn't go back and double check to make sure oh he didn't have a record oh okay they, that's, that's not, I mean, he still raked me but you know okay no criminal record or we'll just pile on whatever add whatever we want to and the reason that I say that went all the way back to the, the very beginning of the book anybody out there that's listening please do some research uh, see if you can find anything about this I think it's super important so this is the very like literally the beginning of the book when she starts out whoops pulled the wrong woman she starts out this here text and she says i was raped a tunnel that was once an underground entry to an amphitheater a place where actors burst forth from underneath the seats of a crowd actors actors people giving a performance that was what dread 138 just said a girl had been murdered and dismembered I was told this story that's such an interesting word too because sometimes people say story when they are telling you something that is not true that has been made up concocted Uh, police told I was told this story by the police in comparison they said I was lucky I have been searching we've been reading this book for over a month I mean hey this is 1981 when this happened right This is not ancient history. We're not digging for crime from the 1800s and all the rest of it. You're telling me that a white female could be killed and dismembered on a major campus university in the 1980s and we can't find one report? I haven't found one. University papers didn't talk about this. Local Syracuse paper didn't talk about this. The New York Times didn't pick this up. Local state news, a white female. Gabby Petito, right? We've been looking at that. A white woman gets killed and dismembered on a major campus and you can't find one report about it? I spent a good chunk of my time today. Not the whole day, but I mean, I invested some time. I found one dismemberment connected to Syracuse, and that's from 1984, which would be three years after the rape. Now, she's saying the police were clairvoyant, they had a crystal ball, and they knew this case was coming. And oh, yeah, you could have been. Un- Maybe, but I mean, get the F out of here. I'm submitting until somebody can find a report of a girl being dismembered and killed. The Syri- anywhere it could be anywhere in the city of Syracuse it doesn't have to be in the tunnel the amphitheater none of that just anywhere in the city region of Syracuse New York if you can't find one man that's the title for the book that's exactly how this starts that's everything I could have been killed and December. you're a liar until proven otherwise you are an absolute total liar and if anything how many people read this book and nobody, all the concern we alleged to have for white women, nobody stopped. Wait a minute. Who was this dismembered girl? What about this case? Sebold even. You care about victims. That's what she said, right? You wrote Lovely Bones. That's what you said. I want to give victims who don't have a voice. Who was this? At least give us a name. That's the tacky phrase that they put on it. Say her name. Give me a name. Let me verify who this was. Until then, if somebody can't find... I mean, just one case that sounds like a dismemberment in Syracuse. And it's got to be before. So, it can be the same time or before. I'd even take one. If you can find one for 1980, we'll take it. 79, we'll take it. Only one I found is for 1984. And if that's what she's doing, using an event that happened way after her event was over. The trial was done and everything. Spectacular. What do they say? Master Deceiver. That's what I would think and that you would have a population of racists. We don't care. Tell whatever lie you want to rape fiction about raping niggers. We'll take it. We don't care. Fact check. Whatever. Fact check. Smack check. Raping nigger did it. That's what they do. Let me see check the phone line see if other folks have comments before I get to my notes and I'm super serious about that if you have an extra minute even if you have students you can give them extra credit if you can can you find a case of a dismemberment in Syracuse New York any time 1981 or before let us know if you find it and I'll make sure I'm not being a hypocrite. The one that I found was 1984 and I can say her name, Nancy Jo Scamura. And that's S.C.A.M.U.R.R.A. Looks like someone who would be classified as white. But this case is from 1984 and this isn't even on the campus of Syracuse. I'm just taking anything that I can find that's close to the region. This is the one dismemberment case that i found. hashtag is l a w b for a reason caller B in Santa Rosa heard from him yesterday. Uh, did you have commentary sir?
7: Hello, can I be heard Crystal uh great, great. Um, I'm a little behind uh on this reading I'm, I'm on uh the fourth uh the fourth session uh, like twenty five percent through. But, uh, so far as I heard, I cannot smoke a bag of this, man. This is, I do not believe this at all that she, uh, that she's been raped. Um, it, it, it just don't add up to me. Like, all the stuff she's been saying and, and she don't know anything about blowjobs, you know? Like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't get that. I don't, I don't believe her. Um, she said her dad, uh, she said, he he says like inappropriate jokes and stuff like that, or he had an inappropriate something and she don't know anything about that. I I don't believe it. Um, but from this reading, uh, today, uh, the first thing that stood out to me, uh, was that Bob Dylan thing. I I can't remember the words exactly, but I, I didn't understand it. Bob Dylan. Had dead people, I think, jingling in their jeans. What does that mean? I don't, I don't get that. Uh, another thing that stood out to me: she's her first time sound like her actual rape. Um. Another thing that stood out to me: uh, she she said another joke about rape. Uh, I like I said, I can't. I don't believe her, um, and and in the midst of all that, when she, I think she went in for the for the hearing. She still called herself a a, a virgin after she didn't relived her rape twice. So, uh, I, I really don't believe this. I, I I really don't believe that she has no idea what a Brent Brentwood hello is. Like, i I'm, I'm lost, and uh, that's all I have.
0: The Brentwood, hello, I'm wounded. OJ Simpson is going to come up uh, today. That'll be the second time this week, two consecutive days, we'll get OJ Simpson references. Absolutely amazing. The original, no count, raping black brute beast, Negro, Rental James. Uh, and that's a good point as well about her dad uh, making dirty jokes. She had talked about that before, so he never said some. Uh, what they call off-color sexual remark, really? Hmm. Um, I do not know what that metaphor means. That Somebody does talk about watching the metaphors. The uh, She's not a fan of Bob Dylan because uh, he chose Bob Dylan the kind of slow stalling melodies that always made me feel as if the dead were rattling their chains uh, unless it makes you uh, think of something creepy spooky unnerving maybe if you don't like it but I do not use metaphors and that's not a common one so yeah if somebody finds that one but that seems like it's kind of in the ballpark like this is creepy eerie music that would wake the dead type of a thing maybe not exactly the thing that I mm -hmm. and she's like
7: equating it up to about to have sex dead people rattling chains like I'm like what I, I don't get it
0: what do dead people have to do with sex? She's saying, you know, she wasn't a fan of Bob Dylan, so maybe that's the point that she said she didn't like it. Oh. She didn't uh, say anything about it, so maybe that's the point. It's not that this music, if the dead like uh, dead people being awoken, rattling your chains or whatever, it's not romantic. It's not like someone pay, playing, uh, I don't know, what are the, the folks Adele. You know, Beyonce or something oh, okay. nice and soothing and sweet and romantic. This ain't, apparently, this is not it. I'm not a Bob Dylan fan, so I don't know. Maybe he does have some romantic tunes, and old Jamie just didn't pick the right one. Let's see. Uh, much obliged uh, for your comment that's B in Santa Rosa. Uh, other folks have comments, thoughts, uh, or your own view, things that are being shared, feel free. Star 6 1. Uh let's see. I will get to a few of the notes that I took for the section for this week. Uh let's see. I totally agree. I think it was dread 138 who said the scene the sex scene with Jamie. It reads and sounds just like the opening rape scene and I totally agree. Like he's grabbing hair and they're all drunk. I think we had talked before about can you even give consent uh if you are intoxicated? Uh, you don't have a toothbrush and uh, you want to you want to call this so-called athletic sex. All of this super rough. You burst into tears after. I mean, nothing about that. I mean, this is just like the Bob Dylan music she was describing. Nothing about this is tender or affect. I mean, you want to talk about toxic masculinity. It's not Gregory Madison. Jamie maybe even white and it's white men in total in this book so we got a white man who is robbing old people stabbing old people remember that one we got the white son of the church official he's on drugs uh, he was the one who did the robbing god Jesus Christ and underage drinking we got the gang rape that you Penn. like man the toxic masculinity in this book is all white men you could even put her dad in the equation for this one going around telling his uh, dirty jokes and what have you, and then he sees a random group of black guys outside, and they're no count animals. Let's see the yeah, and again, no tenderness, look, you wanted this, don't clam up now, like what in the world? why isn't this a rape? Why isn't Jamie talked about in the same way as Gregory Madison? She's or is this just gonna be chalked up as oh man, I was traumatized. I was just you know just self-destructive and he's one of the bad guys that I didn't need not the best partner for me is that what this is going to be chalked up as if anything I read this as okay so you are conceding a history of what might be called rough the word that's in the word guide from Mr. Fuller kinky sexual activity I could see the same sort of scenario having taken place at the beginning of the book with a white guy maybe even the same white guy And you just blame that on Gregory Madison, Anthony Broadwater. I could be totally wrong, but like I said, there's no benefit of the doubt. There are way too many components of this book that are not credible, not logical, cannot be verified, don't even make sense. And fit the same tacky racist tropes that we've heard for like centuries. Let's see. We get this again, all this emphasis on I'm so uninformed and I'm such a virgin. I don't know anything about sex. And what do you mean? Oral sex? Oh, I don't even know how to do that. We get this twice. We got to have two different stories of you performing oral sex, which, oh, I don't know what to do. Oh, oh, I'm so uninformed. Oh, I just don't. Come on. Come on. Come on. And you're a college student and you're hanging out with drunk frat parties all the time. And you're this naive and innocent and ignorant. About a blowjob. Get out of here, Alice Ebo. You're we're a super freak. I should have had another Rick James queued up like get out of here, man. This is not believable at all. Uh, let's see. Next. The white focus of all of this And Syracuse is a big university, although it is private she says the children come back when she's prepping for the trial and everything in the springtime they come back and they're showing off their tans from Florida I suspect it was probably not of folks who look like they could have been related to uh, Anthony Broadwater couldn't have been his cousins going down to kick it in Daytona say hi to a retired firefighter right go further south go to Miami Tampa Bay hang out get a tan and come back I think no it was probably individuals classified as white and Welsing moment she talked about that right going out getting sun cancer all of that, they told you stay out of the sun, protect your skin. No, 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 I gotta get my tan. Too pale. That's exactly what Alice uh Sebold has griped about throughout the book being all pale and melanin deficient. I gotta get my tan, even if it's gonna kill me. Wellsing moment. Let's see, and in the midst of all this, she's back on campus. It's springtime, the students are frolicking and drinking underage, snorting heroin, and all the rest of it. And she says, I saw Gregory Madison by the crowd, and then he saw me everything stopped bullet time this is another one I do not believe you're not gonna tell me now there are confused victims absolutely you're gonna tell me a black male dr. King's holiday doesn't even exist at the time you got staunch opposition from whites like John McCain late great right you're gonna tell me a black male can rape a white woman on a campus he's not caught he sees her once isn't shook. He doesn't run. In fact, he sees her next to a police officer. He's not nervous. He's cocksure. That's what she said, right? Now I see her a second time. I'm just strolling the campus where I rape white women like I own this place. This is my plan. Are you serious? Not believable at all. Next and cocksure like there are a lot of adjectives to describe somebody who's out i guess a suspected rapist cocksure really and even that like you're gonna tell me that you're so naive and you don't know nothing about sex and i'm just the innocent white virgin that's all i am but cocksure and then you come back immediately after the rape and you're talking to your dad and i've had anything in my mouth today but crackers and cock you don't know anything about sex really the hashtag is LAWB for a reason uh, let's see and again I got to put all of the people victims white people who read this book and gave it five stars this is great this is uh, really this is not even believable even if Anthony Broadwater if he came out today and said he raped her and whatever 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 you still got big chunks of this that are not believable at all uh let's see she says i had become his opponent now no longer merely his victim i don't know what this is if i believe that a rape happened and i'm a strong white woman and you're not gonna beat me down as some female victim like whatever if that's the way that you want to portray this is like your television that's what this reads like to me like you're just going to make up some sort of fictionalized story where you can be the conquering white woman who's not going to be a rape victim you get to come back and you stick it to the no count Negro that's the way this reads to me not something that I can take as like legitimate uh, let's see and You know what? I need to stop and read The Lovely Bones, not because she's a great author. This is trash. We've had a book club for a decade. We've read all kinds of authors from all over the world. Anybody who's listened to the book club for some time, you should be able to say, hey, I have a refined palate. I can recognize quality literature. This is not. And this book didn't even sell well. It didn't even make an impact when it first came out. Raping Negro or no white people didn't even care. The Lovely Bones is what made this book become popular. Everyone gravitated to that book. Now, that book is also about fiction, but that book is also about a white girl who's raped. She's killed in that instance. One of the big differences, people already talked about uh, some of the, the differences in that book, and they were saying that, man, that book, movie, is all about how much the parents are grieving the loss of their daughter and this white girl and oh they miss her so much and there's so much attention and people said man Alice Bolt had this dysfunctional family maybe that's what she wanted she wanted all that attention and then her parents they don't even want to go to the rape trial they're arguing like you go nah you go you go you go I don't want to go nah I don't want to go my therapist says I should go but I still don't want to go nah you go and they're like dang maybe she just wanted some attention from her parents even make up a rape story to get attention from her parents maybe that's what this is one of the differences that rape scene in the or the attack scene whatever you call it. yeah she was raped so the rape in the lovely bones they don't go into all that detail and that the lovely bones does not begin with that white girl being raped it starts like a normal story you get who are these people can i meet the characters first oh okay this is who the girl is this is her family da, 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 da. and then later on we get to the rape it's not like this when we start off bam black cock in my mouth ah the other difference you don't get all of that. It's not a really detailed graphic depiction of how this white girl is killed and raped in The Lovely Bones. It's just, oh, it happened and they move forward. This one, oh my God, that's almost a whole like two chapters. And then you got to go back and recount it and go over all of it again. You don't hear all that detail about how a white man, because that's the perpetrator in The Lovely Bones, you don't hear all that about this white man. In fact, most of the film, The White Man, is just chilling cocksure the whole time and does not get caught ever brags eludes the police is even looking like he's gonna get another get uh the victim's sibling like oh you got another cute white girl Mm, she looks delicious too i'll kill and rape her too it is a super different portrayal of victims and again there's no poem there's no commentary about how we're gonna rape and castrate this white rapist in the lovely bones Let's see. All these jokes about rape, that just makes it more unbelievable to me. I know sex abuse victims. None of them goes around making jokes all the time, much less like right immediately afterwards. And I'm ha, 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 making all these off color jokes about my rape and sexual abuse. I don't know anybody who does that. Like I said, I know sex abuse victims. Nobody I know does this. Uh, let's see, then she comes back her word choice in this, I had a date with Gregory Madison, not a court date calendar date To I had a date with Gregory Madison, really really, some people use the word date to mean a rendezvous for sexual intercourse really, you had a date hmm, okay uh, let's see already talked about Murphy uh, nigger knocker by proxy, getting other black male inmates to beat up Gregory Madison. No presumption of innocence. Uh, Let's see. She talks about Gail getting pregnant and being switched. They get a different prosecuted because the judge did not like pregnant women uh, in the trial. That can be a disruption if they have to leave, if they do go into labor, that sort of thing. But she mentions this as another example of anti women maneuvers. I don't remember any anti women maneuvers. I don't remember her talking about any in the course of the trial. If somebody can remember something and point it out to me, I have no idea what she's talking about. Uh, let's see. Mm-mm-mm. Cocky again. That's <laughs> it's not just Gregory Madison is cocksure. His attorney, if you ask me, his attorney is too cocky. It goes tougher on them if they refuse a plea and are found guilty at trial which is what happened here and it went beyond it wasn't just that Anthony Broadwater was punished ah nigger will teach you you should have just took the plea deal that admitted you raped this white woman now we're really going to give you a bunch of years and then you go to prison alright we let you serve five years raping this white woman just to say you did it and we'll let you out oh you're going to say you're innocent you're going to still stick to that that you didn't do it okay give you another five years and then they wait and come back now you serve ten years okay you ready to say you did it nigger oh you're not going to say you did oh. Bang, give you another five years. And that just went on and on and on. Sixteen years. Let's see. Then we have her dad pops back in. They have the conversation with the attorneys. On the rate charge, how how long can he get? On the rate charge, eight and a third to twenty five. Twenty-five years, right, but he's eligible for parole at eight and a third. He could have been if he had just said he did it, but he didn't, Anthony Broadwater. In Arab countries, they cut off people's hands and feet. Again, none of this is in lovely bones. There's no commentary about it. we're going to chop off his hands, chop off his feet, chop off his balls, chop off his penis. Why is all this turn attention on totally? There's This is the dismemberment right here. That's what I'm saying. There is no dismemberment of a white woman at least the one that she referenced at the beginning of this book. I haven't found. The only folks that are talking about dismembering Alice Seabold and her family we want to chop this nigger up we can't just convict him he can't just get 25 years No, no 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 we got to chop off his ears we got to chop off his penis we got to chop off his balls which again that is white supremacy culture yes let's make a movie about this yes let's make this into a paperback they don't do this for anybody else this sort of behavior let's see Alice told me about the lineup, how he could have his friend stand next to him. That doesn't seem right. Oh, Gail smiling. Don't worry about Gregory. I thought it was Mr. Madison, Mr. Broadwater. No, it's Gregory. First name basis for a U.S. Marine with an honorable discharge. First name basis. And again, this lie. They said he didn't even know this guy. This was not some, all of that. The ruse that is so spectacularly racist. A black guy. I'm a call I talked about that last week. Keep going. Let's see uh, again. I am submitting. I have never seen a court case heard any other story. It is only white supremacy culture where there's this much focus on a white woman is a virgin. Did you know I was a virgin? Did I tell you I was a virgin before this Negro? I was a virgin. I was a virgin. I didn't know anything about sex or blowjobs or cocks or cocksure I'm a virgin. I was a virgin. <sighs> all of that is white supremacy racism and I do not believe that she was a virgin at all Uh, let's see I think When she goes through her list here, when she's talking about her trial, when she says I wore loose clothes and cannot be proven to have behaved provocatively, there were no drugs or alcohol in my system. I had no former involvement with the police of any kind, not even a traffic ticket. He was black and I was white. I think this might be the first time that we're getting a direct identification of someone being white and we get two in the same section this week. Uh, Let's see. He had a record and had done time. Again, this is contested. Uh, No inclusion of. He was a U.S. Marine. Honorable Discharge. That's totally left out. Uh, Let's see.
3: Uh, 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 uh.
0: She asks how could his father, Gregory Matt, or Anthony Broadwater, how could he, he support a rapist anyway maybe he doesn't think his son committed this crime maybe he just is there wants to pray for his son maybe he's oh, yes he did rape this white woman but I just want to pray and hopefully he won't get to death and it can't be that Should uh, cast him aside kick him to the curb don't even come to the trial to support for your child <laughs> let's see Mm -mm -mm -mm. again we get all the graphic details none of this is in lovely bones where the rapist is a white man Uh, how no father wanted to hear the story of how a stranger shoved his whole hand up his daughter's vagina really really Uh, she identifies Paquette and another white man with Madison that's why I said it's kind of wild like we don't have too many references of a white person uh, in this book at all where she identifies someone as being white uh the description where she's talking with her dad about mr broadwater she says uh but it was just madison's back now entering the room a flash of gray polyester suit cheap suit he's smaller than i thought my father said there was a beat a silence murphy rushed in but why believe me he's all muscle what in the world are you talking about his penis size what in the world it even reminded me like Welsing, how white people are always fascinated with the negro penis and the size of his penis and all the rest like what did you see his shoulders what okay Again, that this is even slipping into some of that language and making me think like that rape fantasy, like I want a wide, muscular black Negro to, you know, pull my hair and do it correctly, athletic sex. Uh, she says it almost with surprise. Gregory Madison had a father. Doesn't everyone have a dad, even if they're no count and shipless and run off? You have a father, right? to me it just spoke to the non-person I think that book is the man not black males black females we're not people you're not a human being you're some thing what you have a parent I thought you were just a thing a creature a beast you actually have a parent you were born wow she says I like to think I was Madison's worst nightmare that would have been the case even before all of this a white woman making charges against me enough said white person period uh, and we come back to it again like there's so many of these lines the only purpose for this book re- to be written in my view is to support white supremacy, racism, and all of the tropes that go with that. The black misandry, the black beast rapist, the beautiful blonde white woman, because that's in here too. And the blonde, innocent, virgin white woman. That's the only purpose for this book. It doesn't serve any other reason. There's nothing else here, but that if you remove that, we don't even have a book worth reading, worth publishing. I represented an 18 year old virgin co-ed. I was dressed in red, white, and blue that's the whole story of white supremacy racism then we went and burned down Rosewood or Tulsa Oklahoma or pick the location OJ Simpson made in America isn't that it OJ Simpson uh, 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 um, he says I repeated what I heard on TV about I will tell the truth swear to tell the truth the whole truth nothing but truth I thought that they tell you normally the bailiff the representative they'll tell you what to say it's not like you have to recall this from what you saw on Natlock lock or whatever court series you watch uh, she has it written on her body she says the morning that she goes to court while I dressed I had written a note to myself on my skin you will die was inked into my legs in dark blue ballpoint and I didn't mean me that, what in the world it's not enough we, we got to chop his balls off we got to chop his hands and feet off we got to chop his penis off we got to sodomize him with a knife and then kill him and then convict him and hopefully we can put him in jail for life Maybe not in that order. Not The man not. You are a thing as a victim of racism. Uh, anything else? Mm-mm-mm. She says Madison during the rape. Anthony Broadwater uh, did not. Oh, here we go. Uh, then he made me lie down on the ground and he took off. And he took his pants off and left his sweatshirt on. He started fondling my breasts and kissing them and doing things like that. And he was very interested in the fact that I was a virgin. Virgin, 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 virgin. And that's even in the books. Remember last week she said that I had to go in the dictionary and look, chaste, virgin, virginity, virgin. Uh, 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 uh. and then the, the lawyer has to stop and call attention to this stop wait a minute Wait a minute. let's underline and highlight again you're a virgin yes I'm a virgin did you hear I was a virgin mm, 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 mm. she takes pride in not identifying Anthony Broadwater by his skin but by his clothing that alone stands out to me like what's the point <laughs> why not he's the only black person here point him out however you're going to Make it seem like this is not about racism, white supremacy, which it is every step of the way. Uh, And then I had more notes. The last one I'll get in for right now. Uh, She says uh, 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 Mastin questioned me about what Officer Clapper looked like. Uh, He pointed out the discrepancy was because I had appeared at class to tell my teacher I couldn't attend. Had naturally called my parents and told them what had happened. Had tried to wait for a friend to walk home all things a good girl he implied might do after running into her rapist on the street i think someone asked before how many times is that phrase in the book good girl good girl all the good girls are white of course i said yeah i had other notes but i'll uh check in let's see uh previously mentioned henry in chicago with us as well did you have commentary sir
8: All right. uh, greetings, Gus, and greetings to the uh, callers and listeners. Um, Jamie is such a romantic person. <laughs> that, that guy is something. Um, and, yeah, I, I don't know why would she frolic with somebody like that, you know, if she really is traumatized by a rape. But what's interesting in that whole scene that she describes with Jamie was uh, that, I guess, when... Jamie, when he, when she was going to give Jamie a blowjob, she gagged. And I don't remember her doing that when she got raped. Uh, cause I, I, I do remember she mentioned that the rapist was trying to, uh, make her give make, uh, make her give him a blowjob. And I don't remember her gagging at that point. So that's another thing that, you know, that kind of throws the whole story off. Um, First time she's uh, identified somebody white or somebody racially uh, when she said Paquette and another white man were with him. So um, she only identifies, you know, black males uh, who are suspected of being her rapist. Um, that was the first time I saw her identify a white man. Um, white women tears um, was uh, in full effect in that courtroom if that even happened i don't yeah it probably did but i don't know i can't really tell you know if what she's saying is um you know truth or fiction so um but but who knows she probably was in court and she probably was crying probably that's why she got anthony broadwater convicted of the the rape and uh you were also mentioning about um um, a writer from the root who wrote about uh, none of this is Alice Seabolt's fault, uh, a non-white victim. But you know, I also thought about um, the poet Sapphire, who whose career as a poet had propelled when she wrote a poem called Wild Thing, and it was it was about the Central Park Five, which. You know, surprisingly, were exonerated for you know for the crime. Uh, but she also wrote a uh, she also wrote. Uh, well, she didn't. Well, she wrote another point that inspired this great Academy Award winning uh, movie called Precious as well. So you know, we know the level of her work. But um, that's all I have. I'll, I'll, I'll be mine.
0: talk about gag oh my jesus i t- attempted to watch the film precious reading is more important than watching television and gagged uh, i felt i was going to be not na- why I was nauseous i felt i was going to vomit if i continued uh watching beyond the 45 uh, minute mark Uh I'm, I'm so surprised he said her career took off she wrote a poem about the Central Park Five I don't remember him saying that uh, they were innocent this is part of the pattern of black males being raped I thought he said it was called wild thing she wrote the poem and then they were exonerated like oh well, I, I said I can't say I'm surprised victims guaranteed qualified the only thing I can say is hey I, I believe Ida B. Wells Barnett, the great, she said, There was a time I was confused. They would come out and say, Oh, we had to lynch this nigger. He raped a white woman, reckless eyeballing. We had to do it. And she said she believed it. Like, yeah, (sighs) we should just behave. Leave those white women alone and, you know, keep your pants up. All the rest of them. And she said, Man, that is not what's happening at all. They have tricked me racist Alice Sebold—they trick a lot of non-white people. We will go. I'm so glad I missed that poem. I hate poetry. I hate this book. I hate poetry. Uh, let's see, poem right here in the book too. One and the same. Uh, let's see, who writes poems about raping niggers? Do people write poems about Jerry Sandusky, Prince Andrew, Woody Allen? Anybody write poems about them? chopping off their balls and all the rest of it just niggers. audio segment number two uh, if you have additional thoughts comments jot them down we'll have time to share afterwards and look if you have free time can you find any report rumor message board anything about a dismembered murdered white woman in the Syracuse area it would have to be 1981 or before keep a looking I'm just saying that's just further evidence we got lots that's just one more chunk Alice Siebold woo, master deceiver suspected race soldier definitely not a virgin from the time she's talking about in this book Uh, context of white supremacy audio segment number
2: two
3: The bailiff offered me stale coffee in a styrofoam cup. I took it and wrapped my hands around the warm outsides. Judge Gorman entered the room. Hello, Alice, he said. He stood on the other side of the table from me. How is she, bailiff, he asked. She's good. Haven't talked about the case? No, the bailiff said. Quiet, mostly. So what does your father do, Alice, he asked me. His tone was more gentle than the one he used in court, the voice lighter, more circumspect. "'He teaches Spanish at Penn,' I said. "'I bet you're glad he's here today.' "'I am. "'Do you have any sisters or brothers?' "'An older sister, Mary,' I added, anticipating his next question. "'He went over and stood by the window. "'I've always liked this room,' he said. "'What does Mary do?' "'She's majoring in Arabic at Penn,' I said, "'suddenly happy to have questions that were so easy. "'She goes there free, but I didn't get in,' I said. "'Something my parents really regret now,' I said, making a joke. "'I bet they do,' he said. "'He had been half sitting on the radiator, "'and now he stood and adjusted his robe. "'Well, you just sit here for a little while longer,' he said, "'and we'll call you.' "'He left. "'He's a good judge,' the bailiff said the door opened and a male bailiff poked his head in we're ready he said my bailiff stubbed out her cigarette we didn't speak i was ready now this was it i re-entered the courtroom and took the stand i took a deep breath and looked up in front of me was my enemy he would do everything he could to make me look bad stupid confused hysterical Madison could look at me now. His man had been sent in. I saw Paquette approach me. I looked right at him, took him all in, his small build, ugly suit, the sweat on his upper lip. He may have been, in some part of his life, a decent man, but what overwhelmed me now was my contempt for him. Madison had committed the crime, but Paquette, by representing him, condoned it. He seemed the very force of nature I had to fight. I had no trouble hating him. Miss Siebold. I believe that you testify that you were headed into Thorndon Park on May 8th around midnight. Is that right? Yes. You were coming from Westcott Street? Yes. Did you go through an entrance through the park there, like a gateway? There is a bathhouse, and there is pavement in front of the house, and I went on the pavement, and then it continues on a brick path by the pool, and I walked on that brick path. So that the bathhouse, then, is at the perimeter of the pool on the Westcott side? Yes. The path you are talking about takes you right into the center of the park and right out on the other side, would it? Yes, it would. You started to go down that path? Yes, I did. You testified today that the whole area was surrounded by lights and that the lighting was quite good? Yes, I did. Do you remember testifying in a preliminary examination on this case? Yes, I did. I hated these questions. Who wouldn't remember? But I held my sarcasm in check. Do you remember saying that there were some lights on anyway from the bathhouse, but what page, Mastine asked? page four, the preliminary exam. Is this the preliminary exam? Gorman asked, holding up a group of papers. Yes, Paquette said. Line 14. I think there are some lights from my way to the bathhouse. I could see behind. It was dark, but not black behind me. I remembered my phrase, dark, but not black. Yes, I said that. Isn't that a little bit different than saying you were surrounded by lights on all sides and quite good lighting? I knew what he was doing. It may sound more dramatic to say surrounded by lights. The light was there, and I saw what I saw. My question is, was it dark but not black the way you testified in the preliminary, or was it quite good lighting surrounded by lights the way you testified today? When I said quite good lighting, I meant quite good lighting in the dark. Okay. Now you went about how far into the park before you were first accosted? I went past the bathhouse and past the gate and the fence that is along the pool and about ten feet past that fence, and then I was taken by the man. How many feet or yards would it be from the entrance to the park until that point that you described as ten feet beyond? Two hundred feet. About two hundred feet. You were into the park about two hundred feet when you were first accosted? Yes, I was. Did that person come up from behind you? Yes, he did. Grabbed you from behind? Yes, he did. You struggled at that point? Yes, I did. Did that struggle take a long time? Yes. About how long? About 10 or 15 minutes. Now, there came a point when this individual took you from where you were first accosted into another area of the park. Is that right? It wasn't another area. It was just further in. Further into the park? Not further into the park, but on an outside the... We struggled outside the tunnel, and then he took me inside the tunnel. Could you describe this tunnel for me? The questions were fast and furious. I had to breathe quickly to keep up. I couldn't see anything but Paquette's lips moving and the beads of sweat above them. Well, I keep calling it a tunnel because somebody told me that it was a tunnel leading up to the amphitheater... From what I see, and it doesn't have, you can't go farther into it than a distance of about ten feet. It is more like a cave and an arch. It has got stonework above it and a gate in front of it. How deep does it go in there, from the gate to the wall? I would say about ten, fifteen feet at the most. At the most, he said. It felt like a sudden, unexpected parry in a fencing match. I ask you to take a look at Exhibit Number 4, which has been received into evidence, and I ask you, do you recognize that? Yes, I do. What is that? That is the path by which he took me to the tunnel, and that is the gate in front of the tunnel, the opening of the gate. So if we were looking at this picture, and would he have taken you farther down that path walking, and I would call it into the picture, or am I misstating? The tunnel is behind the gate, or the cave is behind the gate. Suddenly, it dawned on me what he was doing. All the gate and tunnel questions, the rapid fire on where I was coming from, going to, how many feet it was or wasn't. He was trying to wear me out. Could you point out to me any other spotlight or streetlights that you see in the picture? I sat forward on my seat and studied Exhibit 4 closely. I was attentive. I waited to form the answers that would equal him, move for move i don't see any street lights except right up here on that tip there is a light way in the back of the picture yes are there any lights there that weren't depicted in this photograph yes there are he said again the same disbelieving tone meant to imply that i was really a bit insane wasn't i they are missing from the picture he said he smiled up at the judge bemused They are not in the picture, no, I said. That is because the picture doesn't show the whole area. All of what wasn't said in every move of his, his insinuations, what he implied, I tried to answer by being as clear and controlled as possible. Quickly, he pushed forward another photo. This is exhibit number five. Do you recognize that? Yes, I do. That is the area where you were assaulted, is that right? Yes, it is. "'Is there any lighting in that picture? Any artificial lights?' "'No, I do not see any lighting, and you could see the place, and you—there must be some light.' "'The question is,' he said, pressing in, "'do you see any artificial lighting? Of course there are police lights flashing into the picture.' "'I see no artificial lights,' I said, "'and it is only a picture of the stone, and there can't be lights in the stone,' I said, looking up at him and at the rest of the court.' That probably would be true. His lips curled. About how much time would you say that you spent in that area? I would say about an hour. About an hour? A little bit more. I am sorry? He cocked his hand to his ear. I said an hour or a little bit more. An hour or a little bit more? How much time did you spend on the pathway that led up to the area we are talking about in Exhibit Number 5? On the pathway about two minutes... Right outside the cave, about 15 minutes. I wanted to get it right. All right, so you were on the pathway for about two minutes? Right. The area outside of the cave is depicted in Exhibit 5 for about 15 minutes? Yes. The area actually in the cave for about a little over an hour? Right. I was exhausted, felt as if I was being dragged here and there. The course of this man's logic was beyond me, and it was meant to be. Now, you saw this person on one other occasion, I think, and on that evening? I believe that you testified that that was as he was walking down the path? Yes. And that was about how far from you? That was about 150 feet from me. About 150 feet? Hearing my words back was maddening. He wanted me to falter. Yes. About 50 yards, is that fair? About half a football field? I would say, I said, a hundred and fifty feet. I sunk a nail in, but he pulled it out. Your glasses weren't on then, were they? No, they were not. When did you lose those glasses? During the time. But he didn't like where I might be going, so he phrased my answer for me. During the fight on the path, right? Yes. So within the first two minutes of this altercation, you lost your glasses? I remembered my own time breakdown during the fight which was off the side of the pathway. So did he. So you were two minutes on the path and then 15 minutes outside the gate, and it was during this 15-minute period that your glasses came off? Yes, it was. Now, did you fight on the path, or did he sort of spirit you over to the area in front of the gate? His choice of words, spirit you over, and his gesture, a hula dancer-like push to the side with his hands, infuriated me. I looked down at his shoes to dissipate my rage. Gail's words came back to me. If you ever get lost or upset, just tell, as best you can, what happened to you. He put his arms around both my arms, down at my side, and the other around the mouth, and so I couldn't really fight, and I agreed not to scream. And when he let go of my mouth and I screamed, that is when we started fighting. Were you stationary at the first spot that you stopped at, at that point, or had you been moved? We were not in sync. I kept listening to what I knew to be the truth, and I spoke from that place. He used language like, that you stopped at, as if I had free will, a choice in the matter. I was walking, yes. He was standing behind you, isn't that right? Yes, he was. You gave a quite detailed description today and I believe that you testified that the person that was there was about 5'5 five five to 5'7, five broad shoulders, small but very muscular, and you testified that he had a I-can't-read-my-own-writing, some kind of a line? Boxer, I said. A pug nose? Yes. Almond-shaped eyes? Yes. Now, is it your testimony that you gave all of that information to the police on May 8th? On May 8th, what I was to do was to put together a composite drawing from features. Did you give the police who are going to go looking for the suspect the information you gave us here today? Could you repeat that? Did you give the information that I just outlined that you testified to today, did you give all that information to the police on May the 8th? I don't recall if I gave them all of it. I gave most of it. Did you sign a statement on May 8th that set forth your version of the incident as it occurred? Yes, I did. Would it refresh your memory if I were to show you the statement and give you an opportunity to review it? Yes. I would ask this to be marked as defendant's exhibit. Paquette handed a copy to me and one to the judge. I show you to review the statement to yourself, and I guide your attention to the bottom paragraph, and I think that is where most of the description is, and review it to yourself and let me know when you are finished and if your memory has been refreshed as to the description you gave to the police on May 8, 1981. He had succeeded in talking during the entire time I had to review the statement. Have you had an opportunity to review that? Yes. Could you tell me what you told them on the 8th of May? I said, I wish to state the man I encountered in the park is a Negro approximately 16 to 18 years of age small and muscular build of one hundred and fifty pounds, wearing dark blue sweatshirt and dark jeans with short Afro-style haircut. I desire prosecution in the event this individual is caught. That doesn't say anything about the jaw or pug nose or any almond eyes, does it? No, I said, it does not. I was not thinking fast. How, if I had not mentioned them, could the composite have been made? Why didn't the police take those things down? When presented with the insufficiency of my statement, I was unable to reason that the lack in it had not been my fault. Paquette had won his point. Now you saw this individual on Marshall Street again, and this was in October. Is that right? Yes. I gather from your testimony that you made a correct me if I'm wrong. You made an effort to remember the features of that person so that you could go back and reconstruct it? Yes, I did. Then what you did was, you went back to your dorm and reconstructed those features that you recall from that encounter on Marshall Street. Is that true? Also from the encounter on May 8th, I said. Anticipating his point, I rushed on, and I could not have identified him as the man who raped me unless he was the man who raped me. Repeat that? I was glad to. In other words, I am saying that I would not have spotted him on the street as the man who raped me unless he was the man who raped me. So I knew those features. I had to know those features and what they looked like in order to identify him in the first place. You were on Marshall Street and you saw this individual for the first time on that day? What was he doing? I saw him for the first time on May 8th and I saw him for the second time on October 5th. I noticed Gale. She had been leaning forward, listening to the cross. With that answer, she sat back in her chair with a force of pride. That is what I said for the first time on that day. I was trying. I don't want to get tripped up, I said. Okay. Now I started again. The first time that I saw him, and I knew for sure that it was him, the man who had raped me, was when he was crossing the street and said, "'Hey, girl, don't I know you from somewhere?' and the first time I saw the same body was on the other side of the street when he was talking to the man in the alley between Way in and Gino's and Joe's. I was being as exact as possible. I had first spotted his body from the back, not becoming certain it was him until a few minutes later when he spoke to me and I saw his face. He was talking to someone in the alley there? Yes. That is how far from where you were, from where I was when where you were standing when you saw him. I was walking, and when I saw him, and it, it is just the street. He was on the sidewalk, and so it was just the street. You didn't say anything to him. No, I said nothing. He didn't say anything to you? He said, hey girl, don't I know you from somewhere? Paquette was suddenly excited. Did he say that? Are you saying that he said that then or after he came back down the street? He wasn't in the alley, I said. I wanted to make certain of what I said now. I couldn't imagine the cause for Paquette's excitement. Wouldn't know for 15 years that the defense had claimed Madison had been talking to Officer Clapper when he said, Hey, don't I know you from somewhere? I backtracked. There was something Paquette was after, and I didn't know what. He was talking to a man in the alley. He said that to me when I was on the other side of the street, the Huntington Hall side. "'and walking up and away from the varsity. "'He said that as he was crossing the street "'and coming toward me. "'That would be the second time of that day "'that you saw him. "'Yes, that was the first time that I knew for sure "'that that was the man who raped me. "'A lot of things happened,' Paquette said. "'The tone he used was breezy, "'as if it had been a big and overwhelming day "'at the fair for me, "'as if I couldn't get my story straight "'because there was no straight story.' Did you contact the police and make a statement to the police on October 5th? Yes, I did. That was the sworn statement that you signed? Yes. You did ask the lieutenant to indicate that was full and accurate and complete? Yes, I did. Did you tell the police on October 5th, 1981, that the man you saw on Marshall Street was the man who raped you, or did you say that you had a feeling that he might be the man? I said that that was the man who raped me on May 8th. You are sure of that. He was setting something up. Even I could see that. The only thing I could do was stick to my story as he pinned me down. Yes, I am. So if the statement says something else, then the statement is wrong. I was in a minefield now. I kept walking. Yes, it is. But you signed the statement, didn't you? He was taking his time. I looked right at him yes i did did you have a chance to read it over yes i did did they review it with you before you signed it this was excruciating they didn't review it they gave it to me to read who are they he asked belligerently he checked a note he'd made he was grandstanding now you've had 14 years of school he said and you read it and that was no problem and you understood it all Yes, I did. Your testimony today is that you were sure that that is true, even if the statement on October the 5th doesn't say that. Mastine objected. Perhaps we could have a question and answer? Sustained, said Gorman. Do you recall, Paquette began again, saying in the statement to the police, I had a feeling that the black male... Mastine stood... I will object to the counsel reading from the statement or using the statement to impeach credibility. Reading from the statement is improper, and in fact, I object to it on that basis. He could read from the statement, Gorman said to Mastine. I believe, Mr. Paquette, you should form the question something like this. Do you recall giving the statement to the police on such and such a date and read from the statement, if you would, please? Sure, Paquette said. Some of his steam had been lost. Do you recall giving the statement to the police on October 5th? Yes. Do you recall telling the police that I had a feeling that the black male might be the person that raped me last May in Thorndon Park? I had caught on to the game now. I would like to see a copy of it, just to be sure, I said. Sure, be happy to. I would ask that this be marked as Defendant C for Identification the statement made by Alice Siebold on October 5th. I ask you to review the statement and ask you if that refreshes your recollection as to the information you gave at the time. I scanned the contents of my affidavit. Immediately, I saw the problem. Okay, I said. Did you advise the police in that statement that you were sure? I interrupted him. Suddenly, I knew that the last few minutes were ones I could wrestle back from him. The reason why I said that I had a feeling at that point was because I had only seen his back and his mannerisms at that point. I was sure when I saw his face on the second time, when I was on the other side of the street. I had a feeling because of his build and mannerisms on the first time, when I saw him from the back, but since I had then not seen his face at that time, I was not sure When I saw his face, I was sure that that was the man who raped me on May 8th. This statement was made after you had seen him both times on Marshall Street, wasn't it? Yes, it was. They asked me to describe it, and in chronological order, which I did. Does that statement in any way reflect a change in your stance from might be to is? No, it does not. Thank you. He acted as if he had won something. He wanted out of that line of questioning, and he took what he could get. He opted to muddy the water. Wasn't it clear from all this feeling, to sure, might be, to is, that I was too confused to be believed? By the way, he said, reapproaching again, on the day of the lineup in November, were there people from the Rape Crisis Center present in the building? Yes, there were. Had you had counsel with them just prior to the lineup? Counsel? Did you talk to them, and were they available? Yes. She accompanied me to the public safety building. As soon as you left the lineup, were they still available to you? Yes, she was. She was? Yes. You talked to her before, and you talked to her after. Is that right? Yes. Are they here today? Is there anyone from the Rape Crisis Center here today? No, they are not. They are neither in the courtroom or in the building? No. Paquette hadn't liked the point Mastine had made earlier, that Paquette, by not allowing Tricia in the room, could himself have had a hand in undermining the lineup as evidence. Now, there was a lineup procedure held, wasn't there? Yes, there was. I believe that that was on November 4th? Yes, it was. Do you remember an investigator Lorenz being there? yes i do had you recognized him from seeing him before yes i had where had you recognized him from he is the man who took my affidavit on may 8th did he ever tell you that he didn't believe the statement that you made on may 8th i did not stop neither Gale nor mastine had told me that lorenz initially doubted me no he did not "'Do you remember him advising you in any way "'when you first came into the lineup room? "'He told me that my duty was to look at the five men "'and mark the box as to which one was the man in question. "'Do you recall who else was in the lineup room? "'I went through my head, "'reimagining the room and the bodies in it. "'Mrs. Jubelair, the court stenographer "'or the room stenographer, I don't know what you call them, "'and the other man was sitting there, "'and he did something, and me. "'Do you recall?' Yes, you. His tone had switched suddenly. He was fatherly, shepherding. I didn't trust him. Do you remember an investigator, Lorenz, advising you to take your time and look the people over and feel free to move around? Yes, I do remember that. Do you recall me asking the investigator to explain to you how to... Excuse me? Do you recall me asking the investigator to explain to you how you should use the form... His smile was almost benevolent. I don't recall you specifically, I said. You remember he did tell you that. Somebody told me how to use it. In fact, he said, his smile gone now, you did stand up and move around the room. Yes. Didn't you even have the suspects make some sort of a motion? I think you had each of them turn to their left. Do you remember that? Yes, I did. The investigator had each do that. Number one, turn to your left, and you remember that? He was dragging this out. It was his job, too. Yes. At the end of that procedure, what did you do? What was the next thing that happened? I counted down to four and five, and I chose five because he was looking at me. You chose number five? Yes. I put the X in the box for five. I would say it a thousand times. I had done it. You signed that? Yes, I did. Did you express in words in that room at that time to anyone any concern in your mind over it not being number five? I didn't say a word in the room. You knew that by marking number five that what you were indicating was that he would be a suspect or might well be a suspect in a rape trial? Yes. It seemed the wrongs I'd done were endless. So it wasn't until after you left the room that you discovered that number five wasn't the person that you should have picked? No, I went to my rape crisis counselor and I said number four and five looked like identical twins. That is what I did. You didn't express that to anyone beforehand? I did it in the room and before that I hadn't seen them and I couldn't. He didn't wish to linger long enough to clarify. I had meant the conference room this time not the lineup room. You picked number five? Yes, I did. I believe that your testimony is, then, that you were raped on May 8th. Yes. That you didn't see your assailant again until Marshall Street? October 5th. Yes. Then you saw him on Marshall Street? Yes. There was a police officer right there, wasn't there? Yes. Did you approach that officer? No, I did not approach the officer. Did you go to the nearest phone and call the police? I went to the Hall of Languages, where I had a class, and called my mother. So you called your mother? He was snide. It brought me all the way back to the preliminary hearing, the way his colleague, Majesto, had savored the words, Calvin Klein jeans. My mother, my Calvin Klein jeans, it was what they had on me. Yes. Then you talked to your professor? I called my mother and then I called some friends to try to get in contact with someone who could walk me back to my dormitory. I was very scared and I knew I had to go to school. I couldn't get hold of anybody. I went upstairs to my teacher and told him why I wasn't attending class. I told him and I walked to the library to find one of my friends to walk me the rest of the way home and go with me to the police. And then I went back to my dorm and I had called the friend of mine who is an artist so he could help me draw a picture, which he did not do. Then I called the police, and they arrived with the Syracuse University security officers. Did you ever call security to give you a ride home? I began to cry. Was everything my fault? Excuse me, I said, apologizing for my tears. They only do that after five or during night hours. I looked for Gail. I saw her staring intently at me. "'It's almost over,' her look said. "'Hang on.' "'How much time went by from the time that you saw him on Marshall Street?' "'45 to 50 minutes.' "'45 to 50 minutes?' "'Yes.' "'Now, you have not identified Mr. Madison from that moment until today. "'Is that right?' "'Identified him, you know, in your presence?' "'Identified him here in the legal proceedings as the person that raped you?' "'Not in legal proceedings, but I did today.' "'Today you did. How many black people do you see in this room?' "'Jumping the gun, knowing his insinuation, "'how many other black people besides the defendant do you see in the room?' "'I answered, none.' "'He laughed and smiled up at the judge, "'then swept his hand in the direction of Madison, who looked bored. "'You see none?' Paquette said, emphasizing the last word. "'She really is quite incredible,' he seemed to be saying." I see one black person other than the rest of the people in the room. He smiled in triumph. So did Madison. I wasn't feeling powerful anymore. I was guilty for the race of my rapist, guilty for the lack of representation of them in the legal profession in the city of Syracuse, guilty that he was the only black man in the room. Do you remember testifying about this lineup in a grand jury proceeding? Yes, I do. Was it on November 4th, the same day as the lineup? Yes, it was. Do you remember, looking at page 16 of the Grand Jury Minutes, line 10, quote, You picked him out of the lineup. Are you absolutely sure this is the one? Number 5, I am not absolutely sure. It was between 4 and 5. But I picked 5 because he was looking at me. So the juror says, What you are saying is you are not absolutely sure he was the one? Right. Number 5 is the one? Right. End quote. So you still weren't sure on November 4th. I didn't know what Paquette was doing. I felt lost. That number five was the one? I was not sure five was the one. Right. You surely weren't sure that number four was the one because you didn't pick him. He was not looking at me. I was very scared. He wasn't looking at you? I was not what? sure five was the one. The juror says, What you're him out of the lineup are you absolutely sure this is the one number five i am not absolutely sure it was between four and five but i picked five because he was looking at me so the juror says what you are saying is you are not absolutely sure he was the one right number five is the one right in quote so you still weren't sure on november fourth i didn't know what paquette was doing i felt lost That number five was the one? I was not sure five was the one. Right. You surely weren't sure that number four was the one because you didn't pick him. He was not looking at me. I was very scared. He wasn't looking at you? His syllables dripped with pitiless sarcasm. Yes. Did you notice anything unusual on May 8th when you were accosted by this person that you haven't told us about? About his features or scars or marks or anything? facial features his teeth fingernails or his hands or anything nothing unusual no i wanted it to be over now you said that you looked at your watch when you went in the park yes what time was it 12 o'clock you looked at your watch when you got to your dorm i didn't look at my watch i was very aware of what time it was because i was surrounded by police And I may have also looked at my watch, and I knew that it was 2.15 when I got back to the dorm. When you got back to the dorm, were the police called when you got back to your dorm? Yes. When you got back to the dorm at 2.15 and there had been no police called yet? Right. They came sometime after that? Yes. Immediately after I got back to my dorm. He had finally worn me down. It made awful sense that no matter how hard I tried, he would be left standing at the end. Now, you said, you testified that he kissed you, is that right? Yes, once or twice or a lot of times. I could see Paquette. Madison sat behind him, interested. I felt the two of them were coming in after me. Once or twice when we were standing, and then after he had laid me down on the ground a few times, he kissed me. The tears were just rolling down my cheeks now and my lips trembling. I didn't bother to wipe them. I had sweat through the Kleenex that I held. Baquette knew he had broken me. That was enough. He didn't want this. May I have a moment, Your Honor? Yes, Gorman said. Paquette went to the defense table and conferred with Madison, then checked his yellow legal pad and files. He looked up. Nothing further, he said. The relief in my body was immediate. But then Mastine stood. A couple of questions, if it pleased the court.
0: All righty. We will pick up there next week. Uh, I believe we are still in Chapter 11. Court scene is kind of long. Uh, We should have two sessions left, and then we should be all done with this text context of white supremacy Alice Sebold's lucky the number to dial if you have commentary is 7207167300 the code 564943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate Uh, email until justice at gmail.com. Uh, will get in our one, uh, email, finish that up and then, uh, see what folks on the line had to say about our second session. Uh, so let's see one of our investors continuing. I says for number eight, uh, you were headed May 8th around midnight miles Davis. It was dark, but not black. So within the first two minutes, you lost your glasses. May 8th you didn't see your assailant again until October 5th late at night broken glasses the race soldiers don't believe your story initially no mugshot misidentification in a lineup pubic hair identification nonsense pseudoscientific BS time gap between initial altercation and second ID Moreover, Madison passed two polygraph tests, which was not mentioned in the book, New York Times article. Hopefully the cows has helped me to look at things more critically, particularly when the non-white victim has not been later deemed innocent by the white supremacist Ooh! Or rental James Simpson! (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but that is a lot for one case to have all of that. It would be different if it was like just one of these things but that is a lot even if you trash everything except so you do wear glasses you lost them this happened late at night white people according to their own testimony are bad at identifying other black people even if they are the perpetrator they are bad call it cross racial identifications that alone would be enough to eee, is this the guy or are you just picking any black guy In aggregate, the hashtag again is LAWB for a reason. Master Deceivers, Alice Sebold, I think is on that list. Uh, Let's see. Number nine. Guilty. He was the only black man in the room. He wasn't hard to pick out this time. Uh, Oh, and we didn't get to the rest. We didn't get to the rest rest of it last week because we didn't finish chapter 11. Uh, Star 6-1 for folks who dialed in, all the folks who were with us first time around. Uh, who had a hand up uh, be in Santa Rosa Dread 138 Henry in Chicago uh, I will look for other hands uh, folks have thoughts questions they would like to share seriously if anybody out there even thinks that they found a dismemberment and murder of a white woman in the Syracuse New York area 1981 or earlier definitely hand up star 61 thoughts observations I be hurt, Henry in Chicago? Yes, sir.
8: Yes. Um, you know, um, reading over the the court case and the cross examination, I, you know, this is what white people do. You know, even Paquette who is supposed to be cross examining, you know, he's, he's trying to basically, um, uh, prove that, that, uh, that his client was not the one who uh, raped Siebel, but in a sense he should have been arguing about that the rape didn't even happen at all. Uh, But, you know, obviously white people aren't going to, uh, you know, turn white people in, uh, you know, in, in a sense of, uh, he just didn't want to uh, go so, you know, go, go so hard at, at, at Siebel because, uh, towards the end of that reading when she starts crying he decides to let up, which he should have kept going because he probably would have gotten a lot out of it uh than what you know, what he did before. But, you know, uh even Paquette, who I suspect is a is a racist as well, um, is kind of giving letting uh letting Miss Siebel off the hook with this lie. So uh but that's all I have up in my mind.
0: I don't know uh, much obliged Henry in Chicago. If uh, it could be that Anthony Broadwater was the only black male in the courtroom. Now, eventually she said there was one other black person. So I don't know. It might be a light complexion black person or I don't know. But uh, at max, maybe two non-white people in the courtroom. That might be a uh, tough road to hoe to convince the white judge or anybody else there this here white woman is lying she wasn't raped by anybody this was you know young people partying and you know debauchery and all the rest of it but there wasn't even a rape let's you know stop lying <laughs> Like, uh, I don't know the system of white supremacy has a lot invested in the lie and rhetoric of white female purity uh, and innocence which is you know one of some of the big themes of this book and the trial Um, so yeah I think that that could have been a tough road to hoe even like I said most of the non-white people who've like written reviews and talked about this book they do not take the position that she lied about the rape I do not see that they just she was raped she picked the wrong guy she was racist but she was raped that's generally what I've seen from most folks there's not a whole lot of I don't even believe the rape charge. Gus T does not believe the rape charge. Make it clean. Uh, Let's see. Other folks, comments, observations they want to share? Check in, see if folks... Uh, After have they have a moment to ponder what they heard, uh, let's see some of the notes that I took. I just—they keep bringing this up that Paquette made the Rape Christ Crisis Center representative leave the lineup, and how that further undermined. Pause right there. Sebo that already said she didn't even have a connection, since that's the word that was used. She didn't even have a connection uh, to Tricia because of the rhetoric that she was using and all that, and sisterhood and all that. She was she was like, get out of here on Alice and, and my Syracuse professors and my parents to be around. She didn't say she wanted, uh and had some sort of connect uh with Trisha from the Rape Crisis Center, but then she wants to come back and use it, yeah, they undermined they undermined me. That's why I couldn't think about things clearly. Like, no, get out of here, master deceiver. Uh let's see. Next she says Mm-mm-mm talking about Paquette she said he may have been in some part of his life a decent man but what overwhelmed me now was my contempt for him Madison had committed the crime but but Paquette by representing him condoned it really he's not just doing his job and providing legal representation he's condoning a negro rapist (sighs) he seemed by he seemed the very force of nature I had to fight I had no trouble hating him again i submit uh the system of white supremacy generally does not publish or give outlets and certainly uh does not encourage victims of white supremacy to have these sort of vengeful hateful responses to authentic mistreatment much less (sighs) something that i find suspicious if there's even a a, an, an incident of abuse or mistreatment or wrong that was done but whatever uh, let's see she uses there so much performance of white victimization in this part like wow it was kind of sickening at times um, when she's talking about being on the stand I was exhausted felt as if I was being dragged here and there you're just answering questions now if there was an authentic rape I could see some you know have to go through all this in public but that's not even what it sounds like just oh I'm tired and he's trying to trip me up like he's I mean being tripped up just on some of this are just basic questions What time were you there? How long was it? You get prepped. You talked about that. We talked about that with Mark Furman. They prep you. You know what to expect. So all these dramatics and victimization. Oh, I was being dragged from here and there. I sunk a nail in, but he pulled it out. And again, this is being written like 20 years after you won the trial. So really. Uh, She continues. She says (laughs) even the hay don't I know you from somewhere you potentially could have heard a black male talking to a police officer saying, Hey, don't I know you? And you interpret this as your so-called Negro rapist talking to you in a cocky manner in public. Like, Oh my God. Oh, repulsive disgusting. I said before, like that scene doesn't even make sense to me. A black male is going to rape a white woman anywhere in the universe and then be running around the street see her in public standing right next to a police officer and I'm hey how you doing little sister really and it's not believable either way that this would happen and he behaves like that the black person and then a white woman in any era blackmail has raped me even if I'm going to lie and say that he did it I'm not just going to go and grab the cop right then we could have him cuffed and be done with all this. No guesswork. We wouldn't have to wait all this time. No. You're not even going to go call the police? No. You wait 45 minutes? That's not believable either. Let's see. It was excruciating. They were after me. Uh... Muddy the water is in the word God, which he says that's what Paquette is trying to do. Where Mr. Fuller says not to use this term again. Anything conveying confusion, dark day, bad things, vileness, evil—something to be avoided—is compared to black people, like Ripist Anthony Broadwater, and then everything that is innocent and pure. The good girls are all white. Uh, let's see. Again, I already said uh, she accuses Paquette of undermining the lineup by asking the rape representative to leave. Total nonsense. Uh, It seemed the wrongs I'd done were endless. There's so much just pitch for white sympathy and white victimization. And oh, what was me with the courtroom? See, this isn't even connected to the rape. This is just uh, asking me questions in the court of law. Oh, this Negro has an attorney. I can't believe it. They're killing me again. Uh, Again, there's a consistent theme of Uh, the lineup identical twins that's repeated in uh, the report that I referenced written by a victim Uh, you can see the photo from the lineup the people aren't even the same height much less identical twins and then they even go to they could be cousins number four and five I've never even heard that statement siblings related I've heard that they could be siblings they could be twins they could be sisters they could be brothers not cousins I mean I don't know most of the cousins that I have we do not look similar I have seen many people that have cousins they do not look similar and again I haven't even heard that phrase to suggest that these two people look alike oh man they could be cousins not twins not siblings cousins look at the photo and use your own eyeballs Mr. Broadwater in position four does not look like he is related to anybody there unless you just think everybody who has melanin is brother cousin told y'all about that brother and sister thing Uh, she says or Paquette he asks her so you see Negro rapist out in the middle of broad daylight did you ever call security to give you a ride home her response I began to cry oh lord the white tears <laughs> that's a response did you call campus security get a ride <laughs> no excuse me i said apologizing for my tears the only they only do that after five or during night hours i looked for gail i saw her staring intently at me pause right there i don't care what era it is 1981 1891 1801 2001 2022 2055 if you are a white woman in a system of white supremacy and you have a charge that a Negro raped me I think security will give you a ride I could be an error uh, let's see especially especially you know that's true because when she gives us the response later on boy don't they rally like they're going out to lynch somebody and cut off some Negroes balls go out and beat up some black male students who had nothing to do with this right so I'm sure they would have given her a ride she had some tears Negroes gonna get she yeah anyway um mm -mm no other black people in the courtroom incidentally she says uh, Paquette laughed this is after she acknowledged no other black people in the room Paquette laughed and smiled up at the judge then swept his hands in the direction of Madison who looked bored pause right there we've read a number of books about big trials right OJ Simpson and Geronimo Pratt quite a few of them in there in any case you could be looking at 25 years in prison life five days in prison really the person who is for sure not bored is the defendant i can guarantee you mr broadwater looking at 25 years for rape he didn't commit i don't even know how i ended up here i'm sure he was not bored oh this book is one of the most this isn't the worst book I've ever read but it man it is one of the most disgusting it might get that title most disgusting book that I have ever read and again it's even worse because everybody who has read this book five stars greatest book ever and then when they do the oh man I gave this book five stars oh and he's exonerated maybe she lied that Alice Sebo does no got whoa 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 whoa, whoa. When she was going through this book left and right Negro this and Negro that and messed up the identification and all the rest of it her dad is calling them animals you didn't have a problem with any of it then you didn't have a problem with the poem you didn't investigate to find out who this dismembered white girl was to see if she was telling the truth about that let's see she continues so I see one black person other than the rest of the people in the room. So she oops, I missed one. There is one other Negro in the courtroom. Paquette smiled in triumph. So did Madison. I wasn't feeling powerful anymore. I was guilty for the race of my rapist. Oh God. Guilty for the lack of representation of them. Now that's definitely a rewind. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> Got some bias maybe here. Them. I love that one when they do that. Uh I wasn't feeling powerful anymore. I was Guilty for the race of my rapist. Guilty for the lack of representation of them. In the legal profession in the city of Syracuse, guilty that he was the only black man in the room. Are you serious? This is what I'm like, absolutely disgusting. And everybody read this and thought, oh my God, this is amazing. I did see like one or two black people specifically who did write reviews way in advance like 10 years ago like oh my god pulling out some of the exact same things that we talk about but I mean few and far in between Uh, let's see when she talks about the lineup and gives all these lame excuses you're in a police station you're next to armed white men not one plural these Negroes are standing on the other side of the glass. They can't see you. I'm scared. I'm pet. Get out of here. Get out of here. Get out of here. You're ordering them to move. You can give them commands. Make them turn around. Make them say this. Make that Negro turn left. You did that, right? What do you mean you're scared? And you're, and you're scared of the wrong Negro. Even that, a Negro looking at you, and I'm terrified. That's him. Oops, Wrong. This other Negro didn't do it. It's him too. Nope, wrong. Looking at white women still dangerous, I guess. Reckless eyeballing, they call it. Let's see. And even the saying that number four wasn't looking at her. I said that before. Hey, you can't go in a lineup and look down. That's not allowed. White people will tell you what to do. You'll get in trouble for that. They'll tell you. Face forward. Look up. Number four, look up. You know how the plantation operates. You don't get to do what you want to do. Uh, let's see. And see, this language it c- continues, right? She says, I could see Paquette. Madison sat behind him, interested, not bored anymore. I felt the two of them were coming in after me. What does that even mean? You even has some sexual connotations in my view. Coming in after you. What? Coming in where? You know, courtroom. You already said the bailiff is there. Again, Paquette is doing his job. Not a public defender. I'm just doing my job. I'm just here to get a paycheck. Uh. uh, uh. Then she's broken and whimper off the stands. Whatever. I totally agree with Henry in Chicago. Just continue, man. Because like, if the police detective, he didn't even believe your story. All this lameness when you came in. Just keep. The, you could have maybe got her to spill the beans on the stand. Like, oh yeah, me and Jamie and it got carried away. We were doing heroin and oh, I'm sorry, Madison. Uh, let me see. Any other folks? Do we miss anybody? Commentary? They want to make sure they got in. Oh, um, can I be heard? One. I heard everybody. Uh, let's see. Uh, we'll get everybody. Let's I yield. Let's, thought we got to yield. Dread one thirty eight. Proceed.
4: Yes, I I um the the interview by the judge was very um fascinating to me. He came in I understand that he it was a um non jury trial. But somehow that that exchange seemed interesting to me where he asked what his father, what her father did um what what you know, asking about her her personal life. Somehow that, that struck that stuck out to me and then like I said, the um other other thing that stood out, everybody was gonna probably um see that when Paquette retreats after Sebo cries, and then I just from, from the from the first reading, you also you know, just to um resonate with that, Madison had a father or Madison Sebo had a father. So these black creatures are created rather than born and I'll mute my line.
0: The man not That's an important point. I think one, I'm not a scholar in jurisprudence and a victim, uh but this is not a jury trial. I forgot about that. Judge Gorman is gonna he's the one that made the ruling on this. Broadwater, guilty, bam. Man, that hanging out in the judges' chambers chatting it up with uh see, but like Jesus Christ. That is super improper. Like if there's no jury, like I'm gonna go hang out by myself. Like I'm not gonna be hanging out with Mr. Broadwater and oh, what did your dad do? Oh, okay, right on. How long have you been? In the-? I'm very certain that didn't happen. If there's not gonna be a jury, you're the only one that's gonna be arbitrating this decision. No hanging out with the plaintiff or any of the other witnesses for that matter. Uh, let's see. Much obliged, being Santa Rosa for your patience. Uh, no problem. Uh, I just have an observation
7: that just. Uh, keeps popping up in my head um, in the beginning they said that they said that he uh shoved his fist up his vagina right and um and and later on she wrote the po- the poem about the red balls being cut off, and I'm just putting two and two together you know fist vagina, sex violence, sex, red balls being cut off. I'm I'm thinking she had sex with a white person. Uh, That's just me putting this stuff together. That's all.
0: She already described a so-called kinky in the word guy, rough sexual encounter that she called athletic. And that's euphemistic phrasing right there. Hair pulling and all the rest of drugs and alcohol. Uh, she already described one of those. In addition to all the other debauchery uh, and bondage, all of that bondage. And there's a reason Rick James, I keep playing Rick. That's not me being silly. That's what I've heard. Would not surprise me at all that based on what I've heard in this book, what we've read that is like a thousand times more plausible that she and Jamie or some other Syracuse freshman or whatever could be some 40 year old who lives in the upstate New York area they had some kinky bondage sex maybe she hung out with one of her roommates one night or the gay white dude and Jamie or whatever that is like a thousand times more plausible than some random Negro leaped out in the park midnight and raped her and all of the white titties get out of here Uh, I will take one second just because uh I keep referencing I'm not gonna read the whole report victim of white supremacy but this if anything this is why it's white guests only Uh you can read the whole report it's titled don't blame Alice Sebold I shared it on Facebook even though I thought like man I'm gonna be helping to get you know hits for this but So three paragraphs I will read Siebold's complicity in perpetuating racial stereotypes and thus racist harm is obvious. But her bias, not white supremacy, racism, but bias isn't evidence. And it wasn't supposed to be permissible as evidence in an objective court of law, which we don't have in a system of white supremacy. She didn't write that. I'm just adding it. Yet, of course, by design, it was her unconscious. Oh, God, her unconscious or now conscious as it's written bias is an ugly example of the way bias is often weaponized towards structural ends. But Seabold is not responsible for the robbery of Broadwater's life. Her racism wasn't supposed to matter to the court. That just strikes me as a flagrantly uh, flagrant lie in a system of white supremacy. And you would have to know this, you know, about Emmett Till and Central Park five, Uh, you know that that's not true. Uh, There is only one force fundamentally responsible for the horror done to him a network of law enforcement and carceral systems that all serve one ambition mass black incarceration since broadwater was exonerated in late november the internet has been abuzz with condemnation for Seabold, citing the cringy language of her memoir as evidence that she is uniquely responsible for this false conviction and imprisonment i've seen everything from Seabold should give him all of her money to she she, she should go to jail and it has been particularly interesting to see white women authors and writers distance themselves from her as a moral pariah, saying, We feel for her, but she should have known better, as if her racism is distinct from theirs, from the street crossing and purse clutching habits that articulate the same kind of bias that Siebold recorded nearly 30 years ago in her memoir. In a hunger to distance themselves from her, white feminists who believe they would have been different or done differently or been a more vocal advocate of his life have made Seabold disposable and Broadwater becomes a site of pity this is too easy the reality is that many white women in the same situation at that time and even now would do the exact same thing and if we blame them for the outcome of his life we would still be wrong see the tone of this is not did she lie about this whole thing what if no single individual bears the burden of responsibility here? Now, that would not obviously be the case. If she did lie, then it would be overwhelmingly yes. Now, yeah, you do have a whole system set up to roll with this. But I mean, if she lied on all of this, yeah, it would be that one person does bear disproportionate blame for all of this. And that would be the white woman, Alice Siebold. Uh What if it's the fault of centuries old impulse of a carceral carceral society and the powers that enact it and the state agents who carry it out what if it's a network of bad actors who rely bad actors who rely on women like seabold who rely on their biases to carry out the violence of white supremacy what then whom will we punish then alice seabold alone her memoir shows us a convoluted web of deception from the assistant assistant district attorney's attempt to sway her memory to the racist lineup to the flimsy non-evidence made permissible in court that tied Broadwater to her assault meant to weaponize her memory and criminalize an innocent Broadwater for an easy win there are two victims in this situation mm. Mm. it is real hard for me to think of Alice Sebold as a victim We are not at the end, but we've read 70 percent of this book like we. VGQ and the kicker for this one, I didn't read the full report. The kicker for this one, not, you know, words are very important. Bias, all the rest of it. The kicker for this was the person who wrote this report. Former speechwriter for former governor of New York. Andrew Cuomo, which I find stunning because same thing. They don't write poems about slicing off the balls of the former governor of New York. Who's a white man. They don't write poems about sodomizing him with knives. You wrote for this fella. These allegations had been swirling for a minute. Talk about toxic masculinity. What did I say? This whole book, if anything, I got an indictment of white guys just like Andrew Cuomo not black males I don't really have any evidence of that here all I got is what I think is white imagination and maybe wishes but I got a lot of commentary about toxic white masculinity and white debauchery especially at college campuses anywho Alice Ebo's so called bias uh, aside we will pick up oh oh, oh. (laughs) Make sure I get this in before we roll. So next week, things will be different. I hate it. Uh, So we will have a white man on the program next Thursday. He wrote a newspaper report about this black female is the reason that he stopped being racist at four. I said, man, I would like to talk to this white fella. He said the only days where he's available during our normal broadcast time are Thursday and Friday had to make a decision how bad do you want to talk to him so next Thursday or next week we're swapping so we will be doing the book club on Wednesday of next week which I hate I hate having to move the book club supposed to be on Thursday but we have done it before over 10 years have to you know just make do for one week so next Wednesday we will resume with Alice Sebold lucky Thursday we will have a white man on the program to discuss now how exactly were you becoming racist at age four and how did this black female allegedly stop this process? That'll be this time next Thursday, not the book club. The book club will be Wednesday. I'll make sure to say that many times between now and then. So people will not be confused. We will be on the air, just not the book club author. So if you you know are looking for the book club, it'll be Wednesday of next week, Wednesday, the 19th of January. Anywho, we'll be here tomorrow where I can repeat that again, 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific for neutralizing workplace racism. Same time. 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Much obliged for all the folks who tuned in live or archive. Hope it has been educational, informative. I guess if nothing else, like, man, be critical when they come out and get the slinging accusations at black people is certainly not to say that black people are perfect. And, you know, all of us, I am not perfect. All of us have done incorrect things at some point or another, small, large, whatever it is. But whew, it is so easy to just get that ball rolling that. This nigger did X, Y, and Z, and 25 years have passed. He's been in jail and all the rest of it. Whoa, that nigger may not have done anything at all. Whoops. Lots of whoops in the system of white supremacy related to black males. Black people in general, but especially lots of whoops with black males. sobriety would be best. Don't follow Alice sebold's uh I guess standards what she has modeled in the text. Sobri- all forms, you don't want to be snorting, drinking, none of that. Sobriety would be best. Uh in addition to being sober, if you are going out and about, if you see someone being hostile and rowdy, exit. You should be thinking they may be armed. Uh if you didn't leave your residence prepared to kill and or die, exit call the authorities or whatever as you're leaving Uh, if you're in a vehicle you are sober buckled and not on the cell phone we need all of our attention so we can be mindful about the things that are happening around us and minimize contact with enforcement officers as best we can all of that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. Uh, I'm a victim of 400 years
8: of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning (laughs) has been conditioned. (laughs)